uh, we have another really fun thing happening, and I'll let Corey let you know about that, and then we'll get on with class. That's right, yes. On uh, on Gondorian New Year, uh, March 25th, I'm going to do a, I'm going to stream a Lotro Marathon from noon Eastern Time through about 8 p.m. or so. Um, my goal is I'm going to be moving uh, Wigand, my guardian and, and, and primary character, along through the epic quest line. I'm finally, I've, gotten, I've gotten him into Rohan, uh, and I'm finally be, uh, beginning to make some progress there in the epic line. Uh, so I'm hoping to take him through, at least through Wildemore. I'd like to get through Book 10 uh, of, uh, of, uh, of, of Volume 3 of the epic quest line um, in my continuous quest to uh, overcome my completionist tendencies and uh, uh, get my lead alt into Gondor and on towards Mordor. So that's my goal. Um, I'm going to be doing a little bit, uh, I'm going to be doing some fundraising during that, uh, during that marathon for a really great project that we're doing this summer. Signum University is hosting uh, our first ever Hobbit immersion camp. It's a free summer camp uh, on the Hobbit for middle school kids uh, targeted to ages 10 to 13. Um, it's a two-week camp. They'll be reading The Whole Hobbit, doing lots of journaling and projects and uh, having uh, online classes and, and discussions. We're doing it in uh, partnership with local libraries. Um, so you can go to signumuniversity.org and uh, scroll down just a little bit to the events uh, line and you'll see the Hobbit Immersion Camp logo and you can click on there. Uh, on that page, uh, by the way, you can if you click on the Join This Event button, you can download the flyer that you can print out and bring to your local public library and see if they would be interested in, in hosting a, a, a chapter of our Hobbit Immersion Camp. Um, but anyway, so this is something that we're offering to kids all around the country and around the world and it's absolutely free both for kids and for libraries um uh, so we're we're wanting to to try to raise just a little bit of money to help to support that program and make sure that we can support it for as many people uh as want to be involved so um so that's that's uh that's what's going on so anyway so i'm, I'm going to be doing that on the uh on saturday the 25th and as and as uh as trish said we'll be starting the uh, um the the road to erebor quest line uh, uh, which I've been super excited about because I can't wait to actually get to Dale and the Lonely Mountain, which I've never seen. I've never done that quest series uh, in Lotro yet, so uh, so I'm really excited about that. All right, so that's what's coming up soon, and now let's uh, let's shift to doing class. So tonight we're going back to chapter three. The title of tonight's class is Adventure and the Shire, because uh, the thing that I'm um, I'm I'm particularly interested. Uh, uh, in today, in sort of today's section. So today we're going to be looking at not we, we did the very beginning of chapter three last time, but we're going to be looking at Frodo's departure from Bag End and the beginning of his journey. Um, if uh, if I'm really feisty and efficient, then we'll we'll get as far as his encounter with the Black Rider, the first encounter with the Black Rider. Uh, but we'll see. At the very least, I want to look at the departure and especially sort of Frodo's frame of mind. Look at looking at Frodo and at Sam, of course, who are both. Uh, in very different but very important places as they're as they're getting ready to leave the Shire, um, but um, yeah. So I, in particular, thinking about adventure in the Shire, I want to be looking at the parallels between Frodo's situation and Bilbo's situation. Last time, of course, at the end of Chapter Two, 
Uh, okay, it was a week before last. It was the class before last. But at the end of chapter two, um, we were noticing, of course, the parallel that that the narrator establishes really clearly between Frodo's adventure and Bilbo's adventure. Right? You'll remember how the entire conversation between Gandalf and Frodo is framed by the two references to Bilbo's departure. Right? Gandalf is remembering Bilbo running off down the lane without his hat. Right, uh, even before he starts talking to Frodo, um, when they first sit down, and then Frodo, of course, has this wild desire to run and chase after Bilbo, and the narrator says he could almost have, have run off down the lane without his hat, like like Bilbo, right? So, and of course, in the conversation, Frodo himself was contrasting his journey with Bilbo's journey, right? Uh, you know, his journey was is going to be no there and back again. He's just going to go there and not come back, right? And he doesn't even know where there is even. He's just going away and not back. Um, So he, of course, is very keenly aware of the difference between them. So we've already established that parallel and contrast between uh, between Frodo and Bilbo's adventures. And I think that that really comes up again uh, uh, pretty heavily here today. Uh, as we're gonna, as as we look at the opening of the actual journey and his actual departure. so, okay, uh, yes, and uh, uh, Bialver, yes, uh, today, in uh, a little sneak peek to today's field trip, we are indeed going to walk the path from Bag End. We're going uh, to get from Bag End to the Talking Fox. Uh, and in particular, I want to be thinking through uh, sort of the issues of, of the challenges, rather, of scale of distance in adaptation, this this uh, challenge that Lotro has to face all the way through. How do they handle scale, and how do they manage the adaptation of the text and uh, and all of the landscape narrative within the context of the scale challenge that they have uh, within the game world? So that's what we're going to be looking at in our in our field trip at the end of at the end of class. All right, uh, so let us um, let us let us move forward. Um, okay. First, notes and queries. Actually, before we start our first, uh, we only have one slide of notes and queries this week, but I did just want to mention two other things. Um, one is uh, th- there were there were a couple uh, posts on the questions for Narnian page that I would strongly recommend to you. One, I didn't have room to, to, to quote it all, but it was a really great uh, post um, by T. Thurston on... Um, uh, distances. He was looking at leagues and miles, and uh, uh, and and thinking about that in terms. You know, are are miles for hobbits different than miles for uh, for men? And all I, it was it was a, a fascinating post, and I, I strongly recommend it. Um, and the other is uh, something I wanted to I wanted to post, and I'll see if I can post this in a couple different places. It's a link. Um, I was uh, uh, Tom Hillman was pointing out that, uh, of course, I was discussing um, uh, Hobbit names, right, uh, and surnames in the Shire, uh, and of course, uh, Tom, I too was thinking of Joe Hoffman's wonderful paper that he gave at uh, at Midmoot this past year, where he looked at uh, he took the, the the Hobbit names that uh, that Tolkien includes, almost all of which are actual English surnames. Uh, and he 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 mapped them, uh, and was looking at uh, at uh, how those distribute. It's really really neat looking at real world mapping of of of, of Tolkien's names, um, uh, and uh, he has this um, he has this paper posted at this link, which I've just posted both to uh, uh, both to 
Discord and to Twitch. So you can check that out. It's really neat. Uh, 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 Joe did some great work. I really enjoyed the paper when I saw it in his presentation uh, at Midmoot, and I recommend it to you. Okay. Moving on to the one slide that I did prepare of notes and queries. So two comments here, one from Not a Cat. Uh, Gandalf recognizes Sam instantly and calls him by name. How many hobbits does he know this well? Is it more a sign of his general attention to them over the years, or has he paid special attention to those closer to Frodo, both socially and physically? Um, great question, Not a Cat. Of course, we do know that he has been sort of circulating among the hobbits and has paid attention to them. It seems from the comments that are made about the relationship between, like, the hobbit culture as a whole and Gandalf, that he's not circulated very widely among them recently that is like since the time of bilbo basically um he's not it doesn't seem like he has a whole lot of other hobbit friends right outside of bilbo's family um so it seems to me unlikely that he's just been going around that he's well known to everybody that like many many families of hobbits consider him a friend that just doesn't seem to be uh what's going on based on the descriptions that we get so I rather doubt that. Um, that might have been the case at some point or other, but it's not really the case. Uh, it doesn't seem to be the case. Again, based on uh, all the you know, like the rumors about Gandalf that are going about, and the way in which he he hides up in the Bag End, right? You know, he actually just sort of stays inside and tries not to let the other hobbits see him, right? Because he doesn't want to start rumors and stuff. So it doesn't seem like he's kind of roving around and chatting with folks. Um, but of course, we do know that he does pay special attention. Um, you know, so it, it, well, it would be no surprise that he would know Sam anyway, because Sam is Frodo's gardener. So just being there in Bag End, uh, he would have seen and gotten to meet Sam Gamgee. So uh, it wouldn't have been a shock to see Sam outside the window there with his with his shears and his grass clippings, right? Um, so I, I, I suspect that that's. That, that would be why. But, I mean, we can see, if we go back a couple generations, historically, it does seem that Gandalf does, in fact, um, you know, circulate. And, and, like, he clearly knows the Tooks fairly broadly a generation earlier on. Think of the comment that he makes to Bilbo in Chapter 1 of The Hobbit, right? You know, to think that I should live to be good morning to by Belladonna Tooks' son, right? Uh, the way in which that shows familiarity with her family, right? I know who you are. I know who your mother is. And to think that I would live to be, um, you know, so th that's, uh, it seems that back in the day, Gandalf's familiarity was a little bit broader, basically. Um, but uh, anyway, okay. Um, yeah, yeah, good. Uh, Tony, that's a great quotation. Tony Mead is recalling that the narrator in chapter one says that the Hobbit children knew him by sight, which would imply that they knew about him but had n but didn't know him personally. Yeah, yeah, I agree. They they knew him by sight, so they 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 know who he is. They recognize him, but yes, it doesn't seem that he necessarily has a close relationship with them or is circulating widely. Again, especially since the time of the party, he seems to be focused much more exclusively on Frodo, which you know, I think is fairly understandable under the circumstances. Um, interesting. Yeah. Matt, uh, DeForest says it could also be that he met Sam when Bilbo was teaching him his letters. Yeah, quite possible. Yeah. He, he might've known Sam for, even from back in those days. Um, remember how the gaffer says that he's, he's always in and out of bag end. Right. And has been clearly since he was a child. Uh, so yeah, he, I'm sure, 
I don't doubt that Gandalf has known Sam Gamgee for years, so there's really not much mystery about uh, how he would know uh, Sam's name, really. Um, yeah. Uh, oh, so Tim asks a good question. Do we think Gandalf has any inkling of the conspiracy about Frodo and that Sam is its agent? I don't know. Let's wait on that. Um, of course, we'll talk a lot more about the conspiracy as we move forward. Um, you know, as we go into... Uh, uh, Maven, your uh, mic's on, just to warn you there. Um, uh, anyways, I, we'll, we'll, obviously we'll do more about the conspiracy when we get there. It's something I want to keep tracking, thinking about the conspiracy as we go through these couple chapters here, I think is really interesting. Um, so, you know, I think that that's... Um, uh, I, I think that would be it, it'll be cool to look at but I don't want to try to draw too many conclusions until we get to the passages that really talk about that um, yeah yeah and James you're absolutely right Gandalf does stick out in the Shire so it's hardly shocking that Hobbit children would recognize him um, yeah good good <laughs> oh uh, hi Dane yeah uh, and and, and um, well you know as long as you have your dad's permission to be up past your bedtime, it's totally okay. But, but uh, good to hear that you're there. Um, all right. So, second comment, and I loved this comment. This is by Arjamago. Um, I just reread the beginning of Three's Company after listening to the ninth lecture, and something about Sam's dithering answer struck me. Well, sir, said Sam, dithering a little, I heard a deal that I didn't rightly understand about an enemy and rings and Mr. Bilbo, sir, and dragons and a fiery mountain and... And elves, sir. I listened because I couldn't help myself, if you know what I mean. Lord bless me, sir, but I do love tales of that sort, and I believe them, too, whatever Ted may say. Elves, sir. I would dearly love to see them. Couldn't you take me to see elves, sir, when you go? The repetition of elves, sir, jumped out at me. Every section ends with it, like punctuation. I almost felt like Sam should be half-chanting again. Elves, sir. Elves, sir. Elves, sir? And I love this, Archimago. This is absolutely awesome. Um, this never struck me because he says sir so often, like the well sir and Mr. Bilbo sir at the beginning. I mean, he interjects so many sirs. Um, and clearly that's part of the dithering, right? I mean, he's kind of awkward and he, he doesn't quite know what to say, right? And so he keeps falling back on sir, well sir, right? Showing his discomfort, right, um, with his position. Um, and so, therefore, I never really thought about this, but 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 I think your observation is absolutely right. I love the idea that it, it ends the different sections. It's totally true, right? The first, he gives the summary of what he heard, which ends with an elves, sir. And then he shifts to describing his reaction, right? Um, he, I listened because I couldn't help myself. I do love tales of that sort, and I believe them. Elves, sir. And then I would dearly love to see this. So, first what he heard, then his reaction, then his desire, right? Like, the, his, his speech is like the past, the present, and the future, each punctuated with elves, sir, right? That is so cool! I love that! And the punctuation, right? Elves, sir, period. Elves, sir! Exclamation point. Elves, sir, right? With his desire at the end. 
that is so cool. I, anyway, I just love this. Um, and especially the connection that Archimago is making very uh, uh, sort of obliquely there at the end to the sailing, sailing, sailing chant, right, that he does uh, at the Green Dragon uh, is really neat. So that idea of, of Sam being in this, you know, this sort of almost contemplative mood, right, that Sam gets into when he thinks about elves and stories about elves, you know, that that would be kind of showing itself even here, right, when he's dithering in his speech. Um, uh, I think it's, it's, uh, it's really, really cool. So I, 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 I love this idea. Um, and, uh, yeah, uh, Milthaliel says, you know, it's sort of a whisper of Tolkien putting rhythm in prose like Tom Bombadil. Yeah, it's not exactly, it doesn't, it doesn't scan. Of course, it's not exactly uh, rhythmical in the same way, but, but yeah, that, the, the, the idea of this kind of uh, form, I guess I would say, even to a speech such as, such as this, is uh, pretty cool. Uh, so, I, anyway, let's, uh, thank you for that observation. Um, that actually totally made my day. I absolutely loved that. All right. Let us jump into the text because I have high ambitions for what we're going to cover tonight. Okay. So, first, Gandalf's departure. Gandalf stayed in the Shire for over two months. Then one evening, at the beginning of June, soon after Frodo's plan had been finally arranged, he suddenly announced that he was going off again next morning. Only for a short while, I hope, he said. But if I am going down beyond the southern border, sorry, but I am going down beyond the southern borders to get some news if I can. I have been idle longer than I should. He spoke lightly, but it seemed to Frodo that he looked rather worried. Has anything happened? he asked. Well, no, but I have heard something that has made me anxious and needs looking into. If I think it necessary, after all, for you to get off at once, I shall come back immediately, or at least send word. In the meanwhile, stick to your plan. But be more careful than ever, especially of the ring. Let me impress on you once more. Don't use it. He went off at dawn. I may be back any day, he said. At the very latest, I shall come back for the farewell party. I think, after all, you may need my company on the road. All right. Um, So, first of all, one thing to notice is that Gandalf has worked out, the entire plan has been worked out before Gandalf leaves. So Gandalf has given his seal of approval on the whole sell bag end and move to Buckleberry plan. Okay, so that's one thing that we need to make sure we acknowledge here at the beginning. Um, And, yeah, Tony, I also wonder what he heard and how he heard it. He says he's going off um, beyond the southern borders of the Shire to get some news, if he can. That seemed, in retrospect, it's not obvious right now because we don't know, but in retrospect, it seems fairly clear that it's rangers that he's going to talk to. We, we learn later on that rangers are patrolling the borders of the Shire, so if he's leaving the borders of the Shire, it's clear, obviously it's not hobbits that he wants, uh, uh, he wants news from. Um, he's looking for news from somebody outside the borders of the Shire, almost certain, but somebody who's going to be right, right, right there, right? He doesn't say, I'm going far to the south. He just says, I'm going beyond the southern borders, right? So I think it's pretty clearly rangers uh, that he's going to try to find in order to get some news from them. But what did he hear? He had to have heard what he heard either from a dwarf or from a hobbit, right? I mean, and but we know in the beginning of chapter two, we learned that there are whispers and rumors, right, that are, that are going about. People who are coming and traveling through uh, will have... Uh, said things, right? So maybe he's heard a rumor from, what, like a traveling dwarf or something like that, right? So, um, uh, 
that se- I mean, based on what we're told in, in the beginning of chapter two, that seems to be the only kind of uh, source of news that he really could uh, possibly get. Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Uh, Ambrosius, or Ambrosius Aurelianus says, I can definitely see why Frodo would have delayed leaving. Gandalf himself said that Frodo would need him on the road, and Frodo at this stage doesn't seem to fully understand just how much of the essence time is, and of course Gandalf doesn't either. Right? We talked last time about how it is totally plausible. I mean, beyond plausible. Um, enormously likely that they have a lot of time. Uh, you know, again, like we were talking about with the size of Middle-earth last time, right? I mean, just imagine, you know, walking from... I live in New Hampshire, right? Imagine walking from, you know, New Hampshire to Texas and uh, uh, with, with you know, on foot, with no maps, and just asking people when you go... Okay, but, and you have no idea the direction, and you're looking for a particular town in Texas, and you're just asking people... You know, as you go, am I headed the right way for Texas? You know, um, and then add on top of that, imagine if like you're really scary and nobody wants to talk to you, and everybody runs away when you approach, right? So it's really hard for the Black Riders to find the Shire, and and lots of reasons uh, for them to think that he um, uh, that that the Black Riders won't really know where they're going. So okay, um, uh, so that's. Um, uh, that's the, the 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 situation, but yeah, they, they have no idea, right? He he, they, they he, and remember also, he has no reason to th- no positive reason to think the Black Riders are even the ones who are coming and pursuing um, Frodo, right? Um, so anyway, yeah, but but Ambrosius, it does create Gandalf's departure here, um, seeking for more definite news. Again, a perfectly sensible thing for him to do, does create an interesting situation where. Frodo now is actively delaying, right? Um, where, you know, whereas before he, he, he has kind of Gandalf's permission to wait, right? But we see him dragging his feet, you know, he, he's, Gandalf has said he'd be back by the party, and he, he, you know, doesn't leave until that night after dark, right? And then, and we see him waiting and waiting and waiting, hoping that Gandalf is going to show up, because, yeah, now he's kind of, uh, now he's kind of scared, right? Uh, uh, and uh, wanting Gandalf's company on the road. Um, Tony, would he have heard about the attack on Gondor? I doubt he would hear anything that specific. My, I mean, if I had to guess, and we have no way of knowing for sure, but if I had to guess what Gandalf heard, it would be some kind of rumor of uh, something like, basically a rumor of the Black Riders in Eriador. Um, but of course it would be much more, it wouldn't be that specific, right? It would be like that there's some new terror wandering, you know, Eriador or something like that. And he would want to investigate and see like, is that just a, cause I mean, that could easily just be a traveler's tale or whatever. Right. I mean, like, you know, who knows if there's any real substance to that, probably something like that. I mean, Gandalf seems to be, he's, his interest is peaked enough for him to really try to find out from a reliable source, like a, like the Rangers, right? Have they heard anything? Is anything really going on? Is there anything to be concerned about? Um, and uh, and he seems to have one of his premonitions, one of his like, uh, you know, like the warning of his heart kind of things that Gandalf gets sometimes, right? That sense that something bad is going on. Um, 
but uh, but it but it's 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 really indistinct. I mean, he doesn't take Frodo away with him right now. He doesn't even tell Frodo, "Okay, let's." De- I've heard something bad. Let's step up the plan. He's like, "It'll be fine. Leave, you know." But but I'll definitely come back. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, good, good. Um, yeah, yeah. As several of you are pointing out, there's there's lots of stuff that he doesn't know yet. He doesn't know about the Black Riders yet. Of course, he doesn't know anything about Saruman and everything like that yet. Um, and no, no moths have come his way in some time. Yeah, yeah, no no moth communication. No communication by supersonic moth uh, in the books. Yeah, so um, it's all... Uh, um, it's all uh, uh, very, very uncertain, right, to him. Um, so, okay... Uh, let's uh, let's keep looking. But of course, we get his last final warning: don't use it, right? Don't use the ring. Um, and this, of course, is important because you, the very first thing that's going to happen to Frodo, right, is he's going to encounter a black rider on the road, and in under the circumstances, remember, like they're like ditching off to the side of the road and and uh, and trying to hide. It would be the most natural thing in the world for Frodo to be like, dude, I have an invisibility ring. I'll just put on the invisibility ring and then the, the dude won't see me. And indeed, in the very first draft of the Fellowship of the Ring, that's precisely what Frodo's character did. Still named Bingo at the time. Um, but that's that's precisely what he did, is he puts on the ring and he sits there on a stump on the side of the road and watches. Um, so why should, you know, how do, how does Tolkien make sure that Frodo who has no real concrete suspicion um, that the thing coming up the road behind him is super sinister, um, uh, why shouldn't, you know, how, how do we make sure he doesn't use the ring? You know, how, and, and so we get Gandalf's final warning here. Okay, um, let's keep going the news of the decade, right? One summer's evening, an astonishing piece of news reached the ivy bush and green dragon. Giants and other portents on the borders of the Shire were forgotten for more important matters. Mr. Frodo was selling Bag End. Indeed, he had already sold it to the Sackville Bagginses. For a nice bit, too, said some. At a bargain price, said others. And that's more likely when Mistress Lobelia's the buyer. Otho had died some years before, at the ripe but disappointed age of 102. Just why Mr. Frodo was selling his beautiful hole was even more debatable than the price. A few held the theory, supported by the nods and hints of Mr. Baggins himself, that Frodo's money was running out. He was going to leave Hobbiton and live in a quiet way on the proceeds of the sale down in Buckland among his brandy-buck relations. As far from the Sackville Bagginses as may be, some added, but so firmly had the no so firmly fixed had the notion of the immeasurable wealth of the Bagginses of Bag End become that most found this hard to believe, harder than any other reason or unreason that their fancy could suggest. To most it's, it suggested a dark and yet unrevealed plot by Gandalf. Though he kept himself very quiet and did not go about by day, it was well known that he was hiding up in the Bag End. But however a removal might fit in with the designs of his wizardry, there was no doubt about the fact Frodo Baggins was going back to Buckland. All right. Um, now, at first blush, this seems kind of counterintuitive, right? I mean, remember the whole goal, right? The whole point of um, 
the plan was not to cause talk, right? Because I mean, when we're talking when you're trying to just find somebody by rumor, right? When you're walking on foot asking folks where to find somebody, the worst thing you can do is create a sensation where people, you know, uh, like travelers are going to be carrying this awesome story that they heard wandering through. Um, people heard about the disappearance of Mr. Bilbo Baggins for a long ways, right? And it was a, 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 a funny and uh, uh, fascinating story for a long time. So we don't want that kind of news. So here is... Um, you know, a, a, an astonishing piece of news, right? It would seem like, gosh, Frodo's making a big splash. Why didn't he just slip away quietly? But see, this is one of those things that I think if you think it through a little bit, you can see this is actually a pretty good plan, right? Um, on the one hand, yes, this is obviously big news in the neighborhood, right? Frodo Baggins selling Bag End is, is, is the biggest piece of gossip in town, right? No question. But it's not the kind of gossip that anybody else is really going to care about, right? Obviously, the, the hobbits of Hobbiton think this is huge, huge news. But, of course, once the searchers reach Hobbiton, they're already, they've already gotten there, right? So um, who's going to care about this? Is this a story that's going to be retold around the fireside at the Prancing Pony and Bree, for instance? Did you hear that Mr. Frodo Baggins sold his hole? No, almost certainly not. Like a real estate transaction, please, right? You know, maybe because of the connection to Bilbo, you could, but really probably not, right? I mean, it's, so it's a local sensation, but at the end of the day, kind of a boring story and not something that's likely to thrill the, especially the super mundane answer that they have to it, right? Like it, uh, my money's running out, right? So if anything, this is like the Baggins is not escalating their, you know, uh, reputation, but diminishing it, right? Um, becoming mundane. Uh, I mean, how boring is that? <laughs> you know, how how non-fantastic uh, is, like, running short of money and needing to, to sell your house to raise funds, right? That's, 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 that's pretty dull. Um, but uh, um, more than that, think about the alternatives, right? Had he just slipped out, right? Had he just left anyway, if he just disappears, right? So it just slips out at night and takes off across country, there would be a huge to-do, right? Mr. Frodo Baggins has disappeared. It would be like the second vanishing, right? And, and especially given the precedent of Bilbo's vanishing, right? That story would be everywhere in no time at all. And then even if he said, like, I'm going now, like, I'm going off on a journey, a perfectly ordinary, boring journey, don't worry about it, still, they're going to be like, oh, there goes that Mad Baggins again, right? He's gone mad just like his uncle. That's a big story, too. So really, there's no way that he can permanently leave Hobbiton, um, or, you know, even leave Hobbiton on any, on any extended thing, because people don't do this. People don't just... Go he can't just be like, I'm going off on vacation, back in a while, right, and then not come back. It's going to cause talk, more talk than just, I got boringly poor and then moved away, right? That's not going to cause as much talk. Um, it also, of course, you'll notice, creates a certain amount of geographic uncertainty about him. Right. Um, because he's in the midst of relocating, there will be a lot of uncertainty about exactly where he is. Um, so he can vanish completely without anybody, either in Hobbiton or uh, in Buckland, really noticing the difference. Right. In Hobbiton, they've all seen him take off. So they're all going to assume he's in Buckleberry and certainly won't know if he isn't. Um, he's like. People in Buckland will have heard that he's supposed to arrive sometime, but they're not going to know. And so if he's 
a few days, a few weeks, a couple months later than anticipated, they're not going to think anything of that either, right? They'll just be like, oh, I guess Mr. Baggins isn't coming yet, right? Um, so it actually creates a pretty good cover uh, and really is the only way I can think of that he could depart from the Shire without anybody really even knowing the day that he left. Um, so, you know, in the end, it seems to me like a pretty good plan, actually, um, even though, as I say, on the surface, it might seem a little bit counterintuitive. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, good, good. Um, yeah, well, Lincoln is one who says we still don't even know where he gets his money from. Um, well, Lincoln, that's actually an interesting thing. Um, he doesn't seem to be a landowner, Frodo. Um, there's only two things we know about the Baggins family money. One, uh, of course, Bilbo getting some, right? Uh, coming home richer than he departed um, uh, from his adventure. And two, remember where Bungo Baggins got his money? Why is Bungo Baggins rich? Anyone recall? Exactly, Melthalio. His wife, exactly, yeah, JJ. He marries a took. He marries rich, right? That is absolutely uh, where he got his money. Um, and the, uh, uh, there's no indication of how much money the Baggins had. The Baggins don't seem to have much land, right? The, the Tooks own land. Lots of land, right? In fact, it's called the Took land, right, for that reason. So the Took family owns all that land. They farm that land. Remember, Pippin will later on in The Return of the King talk about the land that his father farms, right? Uh, that's his father's land. His father owns it, and he earns money, from, you know, so that the, 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 the land supports uh, him um, in his thingness, right? Um it's not obvious that the Baggins is... So they, 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 they built Bag End with Belladonna Took's money, right? And, uh, you know, Bilbo seemed to come home richer than he left. Uh, but there's good reason. So they seem to have uh, be working off a finite lump of money, which, as Tolkien said in the early drafts to uh, to to the long expected party in as which you can read in the Return of the Shadow, uh, money went really far in those days, right? So you could live off it for quite a long time, um, but uh, but it isn't going to last forever. So it's another way in which this this uh, this this story seems to be plausible, right? If not for the fact that there's like some mythic source of magical dragon funding, right, for the Baggins is, you know, the idea that they run out of money wouldn't be strange at all. Um, and yes, exactly, Pumpkin Muffin. Uh, uh, it, it's called Buckland because the Brandy Bucks basically own it. That, that, that's, that's their land, absolutely. Um, so they, they also have land. Uh, the, 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 the Bucklanders have land. You know, think about how, how solid is the you know the the wealth of farmer maggot right he's 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 a he's comfortable farmer cotton is comfortable right they've got land the bagginses don't seem to have land i mean maybe they do but um you know if so doesn't seem to be much um they don't have uh their their family certainly there's no land of the bagginses like there's the buckland and there's the tooklands um there's nothing similar for bagginses but um okay 
All right, uh, let's see. Yeah, Tony, it is really funny that uh, the whole... The, of course, as as Tony is pointing out, in those early drafts of the story, um, the reason why Bingo was leaving was that his money really had run out. That was the thing that was going to start him on his adventure, was that he actually ran out of money, and so he left home. And one of the things when Tolkien had the faintest idea of where his story was going to go, and he was trying to figure out what kind of adventure to send his protagonist on and what was going to happen, like going out to try to find some more gold was was one of the options of what the story was going to be about in the first place. So, Tony, it is really fascinating that it does survive into the final version, uh, but only as a cover story, right? Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Good. Yep. Ambrosia said that there's there's Tolkien uh, revising and retconning again, revising but not removing, right? As is so often the case with him. Um, okay. Let's look at the condition that Frodo is in in several different senses. The next morning, they were busy packing another cart with the remainder of the luggage. Mary took charge of this and drove off with Fatty, that is Fredegar Bulger. Someone must get there and warm the house before you arrive said Mary. We'll see you, well, see you later, the day after tomorrow, if you don't go to sleep on the way. Falco went home after lunch, but Pippin remained behind. Frodo was restless and anxious, listening in vain for a sound of Gandalf. He decided to wait until nightfall. After that, if Gandalf wanted him urgently, he would go to Crick Hollow, and might even get there first, for Frodo was going on foot. His plan, for pleasure and a last look at the Shire... Uh, sorry, for pleasure and last look at the Shire as for as much as for any other reason, was to walk from Hobbiton to Buckleberry Ferry, taking it fairly easy. I shall get myself a bit into training, too, he said, looking at himself in a dusty mirror in the half-empty hall. He had not done any strenuous walking for a long time, and the reflection looked rather flabby, he thought. Okay, so look at the um, the situation here with Frodo. Um, first of all, notice his restlessness and anxiety, right? On the one hand, he's really worried that Gandalf hasn't shown up, and we can see him. That's what he's constantly thinking about, right? Waiting for Gandalf. Gandalf was supposed to come. Where is Gandalf? And I go, well, I, I guess I'm just going to have to go. I can't wait forever. Gandalf's late. Uh, uh, but, you know, and so if Gandalf really wants me, he'll have to he'll have to go on to Crick Hollow. And notice the, the sort of the hope that kind of sneaks in there, right? Um, he might even get there first, right? So undoubtedly, Gandalf will probably be here in the morning, right? But I won't wait for the morning. Um, he'll go on and he'll probably get to Crick. So when I get to Crick Hollow, undoubtedly I'll find Gandalf there, right? We can see him wanting to um, uh, to reassure himself, right? And it's clearly Gandalf's absence that is the biggest cause of anxiety. Look at his decision to... Um, oh, and yes, Lincoln is pointing out that um, Gandalf is assumed to be the villain, um, misleading Frodo like he did Bilbo, just like in the, uh, in the, 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 the Yule play. Uh, in Rotro, in Lotro that we looked at before, absolutely, yeah, that uh, that idea of casting, and that 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 certainly does seem to be an accurate reflection of sort of, you know, kind of taking the temperature of 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 Hobbit society, right? They're very quick uh, to blame uh, to blame Gandalf there, um, but um, but anyway, okay, so we we see him being restless, anxious, worried about Gandalf, worried to set off on his own. Right, Un, really uncertain, uh, really lacking confidence. Basically, um, that just setting off into the blue on his own is really a good idea. 
um, the only thing that seems to comfort him is that at least Gandalf will know where to find him, right? So Gandalf could still find him at Crick Hollow. Um, but notice the other thing. The other thing here is his choice to walk um, rather than riding, either riding ponies or riding in a cart um, down the road to, uh, to, to Crick Hollow, uh, to Buckland. Um, and look at his reasons. Why does he want to walk? For pleasure and a last look at the Shire as much as for any other reason. Right? He's going to walk there, taking it fairly easy. Um, and, you know, he has, like, kind of a good reason, right? I shall get myself a bit into training, too, right? Um, yeah, okay. I mean, like, that's there's, there's a kind of wisdom to it, right? That, uh, you know, if he's going to be off on the road a lot, he's better got to, he, he better get himself into shape, right? He better, better get himself used to walking, so might as well start now uh, rather than driving, right? Uh, driving uh, in a cart. Um, uh, so, yeah. But, of course, in retrospect, it's really easy to see how foolish, right? It sort of, it's a decision that kind of appears wise, right? To get himself into training. Um, but is also really foolish. I, I, to walk, taking it fairly easy, right? We're just going to go... This is, um, um, this is a Hobbit walking party, right? This is, you know, he's walking for pleasure. Um, saying goodbye to the Shire, a fond farewell to the Shire. In other words, he's worried about Gandalf, and he doesn't want to leave without him. But there's no sense of urgency, Right? He doesn't have any sense like, I'd better hurry. Obviously, he doesn't have that sense is that he's choosing to walk instead of ride, and he's going to, deliberately planning to take it easy when he does walk, right? Um, so, absolutely, he is uh, uh, not. So, like, he's worried, but he's not as worried as all that, clearly. Right? He doesn't, he clearly doesn't actually believe that pursuit is approaching and getting closer, right? So we, so, you know, we, 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 we needed to notice his anxiety, but, uh, but not overstate it, right? Because clearly it's not that, um, um, it's not that extreme. Um, and, uh, yeah, uh, Whale Off says, unlike Bilbo, who ran off twice, Frodo lingers, unable to let go. And Whale Off, I think that's important, right? We can see one of those contrasts really emerging here. Um, although the narrator says the desire to follow after Bilbo, um, that desire for adventure, and remember the passage we ended with last week, that um, desire to see uh, Rivendell, right, where the firstborn still dwelt and all that stuff, um, you know, that desire to, to, to breathe the air, Right where the firstborn were, that elvish to smell the smell of elves, right out there in Rivendell. Um, all those things are, are are very present. But although it, you know, those things are like Bilbo and like Bilbo, the you know, uh, he could almost have run off down the road. He doesn't run off down the road, and as Wayloff points out, um, he lingers and clings on to the Shire. And we see him. He's even as he's leaving, he's clinging on. Right? He wants a last look at the Shire, as much as any other reason. Bilbo, when Bilbo leaves, he not only goes pelting down the lane, right? Um, but we get no lingering at all. I mean, as soon as he takes off in the beginning of Chapter 2, he's, he's gone from the Shire very quickly, right? We don't see any lingering on Bilbo's part. 
just hoping that nobody notices him because he feels like he looks stupid in his dwarf hood, right? That's all we get from Bilbo as Bilbo leaves the Shire, self-consciousness, right? Um, but uh, with Frodo, we get this long, lingering last look. Uh, and I think that that's, uh, uh, that that's, that that's important. Um, and yeah, as, uh, um, yeah, exactly. We have, um, the, the, as, uh, whale off is pointing out, it flares up, but it, uh, it goes out as fast as it flares up. Um, yes, yes. Um, Ambrosius, I agree. Bilbo didn't, choose the time of his departure. He just was kind of swept off and wasn't given uh, the chance to linger. Would he have, you know, probably would have done so if he had been given the chance. Um, It is a different circumstance in that way. But of course, the other thing is that for Bilbo, but I think that even if he could have, he wouldn't have in the same way, right? Because of course, what we're being sort of reminded of as we watch Frodo lingering is unlike Bilbo, he is saying what he believes to be a permanent farewell to the Shire. Right, he believes he's leaving and and never can return. Um, it's a life sentence, as far as he knows. Bilbo was always going there and back again. Um, the destination, the ultimate destination of his journey, was always Bag End. Um, so, you know, he might have been uncomfortable leaving it, but he was uh, not saying goodbye to it. Right. Um, yeah, and exactly, Bruinier, that's why Bilbo's thinking of bacon. One of the reasons why he's thinking of bacon, right? And his kettle just beginning to sing. Uh, because, again, he's he's. it's not a distraction from his journey. In a sense, that is the goal of his journey, again. Like, the, it's to, to go there and to get back again. Um, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Good, yeah. Tony and Galandar uh, saying similar things there. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Um... Yeah, excellent. And Irindus, that's important to remember as well, that um, Frodo associates his desire to leave as a desire to follow or find Bilbo. Um, Yes, there's a sense in which his desire for adventure is sort of more... uh, uh, I don't want to say secondhand, but that's probably not fair. Um, It's not adventure per se, right? The thing that he feels so strongly at the end of chapter two is not the desire for adventure like Bilbo felt it when he was listening to the dwarves' song. What it is is a desire to follow Bilbo and maybe to find him, right? Um, so even that is sort of more personal. Um, yeah, yeah, good. Um, so, okay, so he's worried, but he and he's saying goodbye but he's thinking much more about saying goodbye than he is thinking about uh, being worried about being followed. Um, okay, here's uh, Frodo departing. The sky was clear and the stars were glowing, were growing bright. It's going to be a fine night, he said aloud. That's good for a beginning. I feel like walking. I can't bear any more hanging about. I'm going to start and Gandalf must follow me. He turned to go back, and then stopped, for he heard voices, just round the corner by the end of Bagshot Row. One voice was certainly the old gaffer's, the other was strange, and somehow unpleasant. He could not make out what it said, but he heard the gaffer's answers, which were rather shrill. The old man seemed put out. "'No, Mr. Baggins has gone away. Went this morning, and my Sam went with him. Anyway, all his stuff went. Yes, sold out and gone, I tell ye. 
Why? Why is none of my business or yours? Where to? That ain't no secret. He's moved to Bucklebury or some such place, away down yonder. Yes, it is, a tidy way. I've never been so far myself. They're queer folks in Buckland. No, I can't give no message. Good night to you. Footsteps went away down the hill. Frodo wondered vaguely why the fact that they did not come on up the hill seemed a great relief. I am sick of questions and curiosity about my doings, I suppose, he thought. What an inquisitive lot they all are. He had half a mind to go and ask the gaffer who the inquirer was, but he thought better, or worse, of it, and turned and walked quickly back to Bag End. Um, yes, uh, Milthalio is pointing out the, the sort of the irony of the fact that the destination that Frodo has in, uh, has sort of declared, Crick Hollow, right, is near enough that he's like, I shall have a casual walk over there, uh, whereas the gaffer is like, oh, yeah, is it, it, that, it's a tidy way, right? I've never been so far myself. He's gone real far away. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> Irindus is really taken with the image of a black rider saying to Gaffer Gamgee, uh, may I leave a message, right? Um, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's, 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 it is pretty funny. Now, let's look at, look for a second. Um, one thing that's really funny, a really kind of fun, uh, game to play with this passage is let's reconstruct the conversation. Like, that is, let's reconstruct the black rider's half of the dialogue, based on the half that Frodo hears, right? Um, clearly, the Black Rider has opened by saying, Baggins, right? Uh, you know, some, he has expressed the fact that he is looking for Baggins, right? Um, and he, and because the answer he gets is, no, Mr. Baggins has gone away. So is Baggins here, maybe? Um, uh, no, Mr. Baggins has gone away. Went this morning, and my Sam went with him. Anyway, all his stuff went. Uh, 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 you know, so, uh, problem, maybe in between sentences there, when did he leave? You know, Mr. Baggins has gone away. When did he leave? Went this morning, probably. Right. Um, uh, anyway, all his stuff went. Question then is, is he, is he gone for good? Right. Because yes, sold out and gone, I tell you. Why? Right there, we we clearly hear what it was that he says next. Right? Um, that is, this is this is the guy for repeating it. Right? Why? Why is none of my business or yours? Where to? That ain't no secret. Right? And then after a way down yonder, he clearly asked, "Has he gone far?" Right? Uh, yes, is the answer. Absolutely, he's gone very far. Um, and then, can you give a message? Right. So, first of all, one thing to notice, the ring rates are clearly a great deal more articulate in the book than they are in the film, right? They can say more things than Baggins Shire, as Mike says. Exactly. Um, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, Tony Mead says it gives you a little extra respect for the gaffer standing up and giving sauce to one of the nine. Absolutely. Um, one of the things that always interests me, Tony, about this passage is um, the fact that the gaffer doesn't seem to suffer from the black breath, right? Um, the fact that he's not intimidated, in part, I mean, he doesn't seem to have any idea. <laughs> oh, yeah, he certainly doesn't have any idea who he's talking to. But um, you remember Sam is going to point out that he's uh, he's mostly deaf and partly blind, <laughs> so he he's kind of insulated from how intimidating they might possibly be under other circumstances. Um, but... Um, 
but yeah, it is fascinating to me that he doesn't come down with uh, with the black breath. Uh, and we know this because Sam is going to have a conversation with him in just a minute. And, you know, who knows? Maybe the gaffer is going to go and have a bit of a lie down uh, after his conversation with Sam. But still, uh, he you know, Sam doesn't notice anything wrong with him. Um, but uh, yeah, I, but I agree that things it's I, I think it's important for us to understand here. Um, and there are going to be many. So this will be this is the first of many occasions uh, on which I'm going to encourage us to try to distance ourselves mentally from the images from the film, many of which are very, very powerful. Um, and and I'm, I'm not saying that as a criticism of the film. There are many of the images of the film that I think are wonderful, but we can't be sloppy in our own thinking, right? And if we just kind of superimpose the images from the film directly onto the book as we're reading the book, then we may miss things. And this is, I think, one really good example. Um, If we try to reconstruct from this conversation, between this conversation and the description of the Black black Rider that we'll get later on, um, what are the Black Riders... What was it like to encounter a Black Rider, right? It was clearly not... There was no, like... You know the think of the image how the the terrifying images the screeching and the the mailed fists and the the pointy uh uh you know the pointy armored boots right and the um the really scary uh um like the horse looks really like horrible and intimidating um it's clearly not like that right uh, uh the 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 gaffer's going to call this guy a queer customer, right? But the gaffer would have called any one of the big folk that came up to his door and asked questions like this a queer customer, right? Um, so he clearly, um, the, uh, the, the gaffer clearly does not really view uh, this guy as anything... I mean, he's out of the usual because any big person in the Shire is out of the ordinary, but um, he doesn't really seem to classify it in any other way. They do seem to be articulate, right? They can ask questions um, because that the, the, the gaffer doesn't... His side of the conversation doesn't give any indication of the fact that he, uh, he finds the line of conversation strange, Right? You know, like as if the the guy the 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 Nazgul were just being like Baggins, Chire, right? It's clearly they're having a two sided conversation. It does seem that the gaffer has a hard time understanding him. That I take it is why the gaffer keeps repeating his questions. Why? Where to? Right? Um, because he's he's making sure he heard correctly. Right? So. Now, this may be because his voice is all breathy and hissy and the gaffer's half-deaf. Um, it may be because he has a weird accent, uh, which he undoubtedly would have uh, from a Hobbit standpoint. And uh, uh, and the gaffer's having a hard time making out exactly what he said. Um, but yes, Galandar, I think that's exactly right. The gaffer seems more annoyed and irritated than he is afraid or terrified. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and I think that's... Uh, um, I I think that this is this is important. I mean, I think that this 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 paints us a, a much clearer picture of what the Black Riders were really like here. Um, yeah, and John Uskalas, I totally agree with you. Um, uh, the Raven King says the the Riders talking a lot works better in the book than it would on film. I think um, them not talking properly makes them creepier in the film. 
And we add that when we're reading. Absolutely. I completely agree. Again, in, say, in pointing out the differences between the books and films like this, I'm not at all criticizing the films and say they were dumb to do it the way that they did. I think the effect that they create in the films with those Nazgul in the Shire scenes is really, really effective. Um, and I'm not at all saying it would have been a much better movie had they done it more exactly like this. All I'm saying is it's clearly different in the books. And so if we want to try to understand the Nazgul as Tolkien is depicting them, you know, we need to make sure we're not just... Uh, we're not just importing the image uh, uh, from from the films. So, um, good, good. Let's see. Um, <laughs> Aragorn says, uh, could Gaffer Gamgee have been actually exaggerating the distance to Buckland because he felt something wasn't right about the Black Rider? No. I think that if uh, he really thought there was something... Uh, um, extra queer about the Black Rider, he would have pointed him in a different direction. Oh, yeah, he went off to Needlehole or something. But more, that seems to me, if anything, an understatement. But we know that the gaffer has never been anything like that distance before. So any, I mean, any distance that's further than you've ever been in your life, you're going to call a long distance, right? I mean, the, we, we see from Sam later on in the passage, 20 miles is as far as he's ever gone. So anything that's further than 20 miles is going to be, to, to call that a tidy way, is kind of an understatement, I think, from the gaffer's point of view. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Ambrosius Aurelianus is wondering what kind of accents the Black Riders would have. Would they still speak in the accents that they that they uh, spoke in, you know, when they were kings of men, you know, in a previous age? Well, possibly. I mean, why not, right? Probably they do. Um, you know, or do they speak with a with a Mordor accent now, you know, if they lost their original accents, I don't know. I would make them speak with their original accents. Not that I know what those would be. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, good. Yeah, exactly. Nathalia says it's crazy. I commute 35 miles a day to work. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that, 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 that kind of thing really, um, it's, it's it's why it's so important to kind of try to put yourself imaginatively into this kind of world, right? Where somebody moving out of town is like an enormous, enormous event, right? Where it's perfectly normal for the locals not to travel ever more than 20 miles away from their village. Why would they, right? What possibly could draw you more than 20 miles away from your village? Um, yeah, yeah. Um Anyway, cool. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you just you have to orient yourself to the scale. And once you start doing that, so many things in the story begin to make a lot more sense, really. Um, okay, good. All right, well, we'll, uh, we'll come back to... Um, uh, we'll, we'll come back to the other side of this conversation or to the the sequel conversation when Sam relates his conversation with his dad when he gets back right after that. Um, but what interests me here is Frodo's reaction, right? Well, let's look at, yeah, well, let's, let's look at Frodo's reaction, right? Frodo wondered vaguely why the fact that they did not come up the hill seemed a great relief. So Frodo has some kind of sense, right, that he doesn't want that guy to come any nearer. But it's so vague and so like below the so far below the surface that Frodo doesn't even really think about it, right? It's not something that's really that he's really processing. Um, 
I'm sick of questions and curiosity about my doings, I suppose. What an inquisitive lot they all are. Notice they all are, right? You know, that is, he assumes this is just a nosy neighbor, right? This is, I mean, like, oh, those neighbors are always like, oh, I'm, I can't wait to, you know, with, remember Bilbo's comment about a, a string of confounded visitors hanging on the bell, Right. This is what Frodo's thinking now. Is he fooling himself on purpose? I mean, is he deliberately trying to? Is he is he is he in denial here uh, of that really creepy feeling that he just had? Maybe in part, but um, but clearly, again, no urgency on his part. Right? He never even it doesn't cross his mind here. It doesn't even cross his mind. Maybe this is one of the agents of the enemy seeking for me. Right? He knows they're after him, but it never crosses his mind. He's just like, oh, the, the dang neighbors again, right? What inquisitive, what an inquisitive lot they all are. Um, so he's going to leave, and this so he is. There are too many ears pricking and eyes prying as he's going to say. But again, it's those nosy neighbors that are peeking out and watching that he wants to get away from, right? Um, not spies from Mordor. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, notice the beginning, too. The fine night. Um, again, notice his he absolutely connects his starting with Gandalf. I can't bear any more hanging about. I'm going to start and Gandalf must follow me. Makes it perfectly clear he's only waiting around. He is waiting around for Gandalf and he's only waiting around for Gandalf. Um, I love the reference to the stars growing bright. It doesn't really have great significance. I don't want to make it you know, into uh, make it out to be a, a, a purely symbolic thing, um, but the stars shining bright upon the beginning of his journey uh, kind of does seem like a significant thing. Um, all right. I wanted to focus just briefly on their conversation, the kinds of conversation that they have as they're traveling. Um, I'm not going to talk about this all the way through, but I wanted to make sure we we talked about the tone of it a little bit at the beginning. I'm sure you have given me all the heaviest stuff, said Frodo. I pity snails and all that carry their homes on their backs. I could take a lot more yet, sir. My packet is quite light, said Sam, stoutly and untruthfully. No, you don't, Sam, said Pippin. It's good for him. He's got nothing except what he ordered us to pack. He's been slack lately, and he'll feel the weight less when he's walked off some of his own... "'Be kind to a poor old hobbit,' laughed Frodo. "'I shall be as thin as a willow wand, I'm sure, before I get to Buckland. "'But I was talking nonsense. "'I suspect you have taken more than your share, Sam, "'and I shall look into it at our next packing.' "'He picked up his stick again. "'Well, we all like walking in the dark,' he said, "'so let's put some miles behind us before bed.' "'This kind of banter, um, this, this, this... Light-hearted conversation, which uh, Tolkien and C.S. Lewis referred to as hobbitry. Um, you know, Tolkien would say uh, that you know, there are, you know, Lewis would be like, "There's too much hobbitry in these chapters." When he was reading drafts, uh, and for those of you who have done the Return of the Shadow class, will remember how much more hobbitry there was uh, in the in the earliest draft of this as he was going along. Um, but uh, anyway, so uh, so it, the, the, but this this sort of light-hearted. Uh, ribbing each other, the 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 you know the crack that Pippin you know the the, the complaint that Frodo makes, um, 
uh, Pippin's crack back at him and his insult about his weight, right? And and Frodo's, uh, you know, be kind to a poor old hobbit and his uh, his sort of self pitying exaggeration, right? Um, that especially between the ones of the party who are social peers, right? Between Frodo and Pippin and Merry, uh, we see this kind of banter all the time. Um, this is clearly how friends talk in the Shire. You can tell that they're close friends if they're exchanging really violent insults all the time, right? Um, that's clearly um, a very a very standard thing in the Shire. But of course, you'll notice the. Um, you'll notice the contrast with Sam, right? Sam doesn't engage in banter. Um, what we see in Sam is, you know, I could take a lot more yet, sir. My packet is quite light. You know, Sam's willingness uh, to, uh, to his eagerness, indeed, to help Frodo, right? His willingness to take more upon himself. And notice Frodo's response. Frodo doesn't banter with Sam either, Right? I was talking nonsense. I suspect you have taken more than your share, Sam. Right? Notice how he goes out of his way to make sure that Sam sort of realizes that he wasn't he wasn't serious about bantering with him. Right? I, I'm not actually suggesting that you gave me all the heaviest stuff. Right? Um, even though uh, that's what he said. Right? But he's very quick to correct that because uh, you know he is you know Sam is his servant and he he doesn't banter with Sam that way. Um, he, uh, Sam shows his devotion and eagerness to help. And Frodo shows his kindness, uh, towards Sam right now. I, I, I acknowledge how hard you work and, and, and your willingness to help out. And I'm not going to let you get away with taking all the hard thing, you know, all the heavy things under yourself. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I did miss the line. A couple of you are quoting the line with the the, the shapeless bag that Sam calls a hat. Um, yeah, I I love that line too. I did sk- shockingly skip that line, but um, it is a it is a lot of fun. Um, yeah, good, good. Let's. Uh, so I just I just want to I just wanted to, we we get a lot of this kind of hobbitry and we always will between Mary Pippin and Frodo especially but again Sam is almost always not a part of that um, there is uh, Tim I agree there is mutual respect between Frodo and Sam and I think we can see that from the very beginning um, again it's not equal right they don't they're not peers. they don't treat each other as equals they treat each other as master and servant but there is mutual respect there. That's really hard, I know, for Americans to wrap their heads around um, how you can treat somebody like a servant and also be treating them with respect at the same time. It, it's um, the the kind of comfort that Frodo and Sam have with their socially unequal relationship is something. I just it's unintuitive uh, to Americans. I know that it is, um, but it's one of the fun things is to to begin to see to try to set aside our own biases. And try to see, try to appreciate how it works. Um, I think it's a really great way to kind of learn about that. Okay. Um, as they're getting ready to look for a place to sleep that night. The wind's in the west, said Sam. If we get to the other side of this hill, we shall find a spot that is sheltered and snug enough, sir. There is a dry fir wood just ahead, if I remember rightly. Sam knew the land well within twenty miles of Hobbiton, but that was the limit of his geography. Just over the top of the hill, they came on on the patch of firwood. Leaving the road, they went into the deep, resin-scented darkness of the trees, and gathered dead sticks and cones to make a fire. 
Soon they had a merry crackle of flame at the foot of a large fir tree, and they sat round it for a while until they began to nod. Then, each in an angle of the great tree's roots, they curled up in their cloaks and blankets, and were soon fast asleep. They set no watch. Even Frodo feared no danger yet, for they were still in the heart of the Shire. A few creatures came and looked at them when the fire had died away. A fox, passing through the wood on business of his own, stopped several minutes and sniffed. Hobbits, he thought. Well, what next? I have heard of strange doings in this land, but I have seldom heard of a hobbit sleeping out of doors under a tree. Three of them. There is something mighty queer behind this. He was quite right, but he never found out any more about it. Um, okay, uh... This is, of course, the famous thinking fox. Um, now, but first, before we get to the thinking fox, um, no, actually, okay, fine. Let's talk about the thinking fox. Um, some people will sort of criticize this and be like, "Why is there a talking fox in the Fellowship of the Ring?" Um, that doesn't fit with anything else that's going on. Uh, no, it is not a talking fox. Um, this fox never speaks. It's a thinking fox. Uh, the novelty of this passage is not that a fox speaks in this pack- passage. The novelty of this passage is that, for some reason, the narrator tells us, gives us dialogue of what's going on inside the head of a passing fox. And there is no other place in the story where the narrator tells us what's going on in the head of any of the local fauna, right? That is what is different and unique about this passage. And I actually think that that is, uh, um, it's a really important thing. It's, it's, this is, this is, there's nothing special about this fox, right? It is not a magical fox. It is not a, a wise old legendary fox. Um, it's just a normal local fox, um, but who knows enough to know? It's just, it's clearly the narrator's way of emphasizing how strange it is for hobbits to be, you know, this is, this is an adventure. This is weird. Like Bilbo was weird. Um, in fact, it's kind of funny if you think about how Bilbo wanted to be noticed, uh, wanted not to be noticed, right? And was worried that somebody was going to notice him and think that, uh, that it, a, it was queer for Bilbo Baggins to be riding along with a troop of dwarves and a wizard heading out of the Shire. And two, that he looked dumb in his hood, which was too big for him. Um, here we have the hobbits being noticed and remarked upon, right? Not by other hobbits, because they're kind of being careful about that, but uh, but by a fox, right? Um, so, anyway, yeah, it's... Uh, it's And it's um, strange, right? It's unusual. Um, but if you think about it, this sounds very much like this is why I mean this is certainly if I had to quote a passage at the beginning of the Fellowship of the Ring, um, which is most like the narrative tone of the narrator of the Hobbit, this is clearly one of the ones that I would quote, right? And indeed, this passage goes back to the very first draft of the Fellowship of the Ring when Tolkien was just trying to write a sequel to The Hobbit, uh, an adventure very much along the same kind of lines. Um, This is not a question of Tolkien, as he was writing the story, as we're reading it here, adding in this strange detail about the fox. What happened here is this is Tolkien not taking out the detail of the fox. Now, keep in mind, he had lots of opportunities to take it out. I mean, this thing goes through like five major revisions between when he first wrote that and when it finally enters, you know, remains in the published Fellowship of the Ring. So I'm not saying it was an accident or something like that. Um, 
But again, it's not like he deliberately makes the choice choice to change the tone. The deliberate choice that he makes is not to take it out. Um, and I, to me, that's kind of interesting. Um, uh, um, <laughs> yeah, uh, C. Schwab is saying, we do get Shelob's thoughts briefly, um, but I don't know if she counts as fauna. We do. We are told what she is thinking about. Um, but it's still that we don't get dialogue, right? We don't get her voice. Um, we're not told exactly what is going through the mind uh, of even Shelob, right? Um, but um, anyway, so yeah, Tony says, I guess it's one of those things that Tolkien just liked and kept in, even though it's a little out of place. Yeah, but I think, I mean, clearly the hobbity nature of it, that is the, the way in which it's like the hobbit, is not totally out of place. I mean, we may think it out of place in the context of the whole Lord of the Rings, right? But I don't think so. Um, I think the fact that the beginning, the tone at the beginning doesn't thoroughly match the tone in the middle and at the end seems to me entirely appropriate. Remember, this is an adventure which is about to grow up. This, this story gets serious, when the Black Rider shows up, which he's going to do tomorrow, but it's not happened yet. Look at that. Look at the first two paragraphs. Look at what the fox is seeing, right? They, uh, they find this firwood where they'll be sheltered from the, um, from, the, from the wind, right? They make a fire, which could be plainly seen by anybody around, right? It's not because they're not near anywhere where hobbits live, but you know, anyone who's actually out looking would see them. They don't set a watch, right? So there's all of them sleeping while the fox wanders by, and they don't ever know that a fox wandered by and asked this question, right? Um, they're being really incautious. This is really casual. There's Again, there's no urgency. There's no paranoia. Um, there's no caution. They're not worried, right? Um, they don't understand what's going on. In other words, to them, to them, this story, there's still it's still a Hobbit walking party, right? They're still in this mode. So I like the idea that we get this moment, which recalls the Hobbit, right? Which sounds as light-hearted as the Hobbit does, especially at the beginning, right? Um, because the story hasn't changed yet, it is going to change soon, and we're not going to get any thinking foxes after we meet the Black Rider. The Black Rider's been there, right? We sort of met the Black Rider or encountered him from a distance, overheard him, right, talking to the gaffer. Um, But even there, the story hasn't changed for Frodo. He doesn't know. Um, He doesn't even really seem to suspect. Exactly, Finn. Um, They're still on a hobbit's holiday. Exactly. Exactly. And so the, the idea that the narrator's tone matches that, I love that. It actually seems to work. There are a lot of people who hate this passage, and really wish that Tolkien had taken it out because it doesn't fit with the narrative tone of the very vast majority of the Lord of the Rings. Um, it fits closer to chapter one, but with chapter two coming in the middle, that's the thing that really annoys people, right? Once Gandalf comes in and is like, "It is the Ring of Power," and uh, you know, you, it must be cast into the into, into into the cracks of doom. Um, the story's kind of gotten serious now, right? Clearly, since chapter two. So why do we go back to this kind of talk? But again, I think when we look carefully, we can see the story hasn't yet gotten serious for Frodo. At least he's not really facing it. He's not really thinking through that yet. Um, so, uh, anyway, that's... So I think that that's... 
it's cool. It's important. It's important to see it. Uh, uh, Mary says it adds a kind of folk tale atmosphere uh, for a moment. It does. It does. Um, I love the um, the fox passing through the wood on business of his own. Right uh, on business of his own, like giving you this hint of like there's this entirely other story. Right. Perhaps this is also a fox who is on some important fox quest. Right. He has some journey that he's embarking on. We don't know that's fox's story. Right. What his business is exactly. It could be anything. It could be any, a bigger story than this one. Right. Who knows the idea of the two the two stories crossing there. Um, but uh, but yeah, exactly, Finn. The danger isn't yet present for Frodo. Absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, good, good. Um, James likes that the narrator says the fox was quite right. Yes, the fox. Uh, or the the narrator acknowledges that the fox is is exactly correct in his analysis of the situation, but sadly gives us a little spoiler. The fox is never going to learn more about it, right? Um, all right, we are getting close to where I'm going to end up stopping. Not going to get to the Black Rider tonight, definitely not. Um, but let's uh, let's keep going. We can get a little further. They wake up in the morning. Frodo stripped the blankets from Pippin and rolled him over, and then walked off to the edge of the wood. Uh, remember, Pippin has just been giving Sam a hard time, right? Um, engaging in some hobbitry, right? He wakes up Sam by saying, Sam, have you got have you got the bathwater hot? Right? Um, and Frodo steps in to defend Sam, right? He doesn't let it he doesn't let Pippin get away with that, right? Don't you act like you can stay in your bedroll and, and trick Sam into serving you, right? Uh, and so he uh, he 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 gets Pippin out of that, right? Um Away eastward the sun was rising red out of the mists that lay thick on the world. Touched with gold and red, the autumn trees seemed to be sailing rootless on a sh- in a shadowy sea. A little below him, to the left, the road le- ran down steeply into, into a hollow and disappeared. When he returned, Sam and Pippin had got a good fire going. "'Water!' shouted Pippin. "'Where's the water?' "'I don't keep water in my pockets,' said Frodo." "'We thought you had gone to find some,' said Pippin, busy setting out the food in cups. "'You had better go now.' The thing that I would like to point out here that, I see, that really struck me reading this passage is, you know, as I've been showing, you can see Frodo's not nearly as afraid as he should be, right? He's showing no urgency. Um, but more than that, we can see a very pointed contrast between Frodo's experience and Pippin's experience, right? Um... Pippin is on a camping trip. Clearly, this is a hobbit walking party, right? He's he's walking for pleasure, and he's treating this whole thing like a pleasure outing. Um, notice how when Frodo gets up, he goes walking off. Why does he go walking off? Where is he going? What is he doing? He is going off to be contemplative, right? Uh, to look east, to look off to, into the east, into the distance. Right, uh, and to th- to to observe the beauty of the Shire. I mean, I love this description. Um, those are two sentences, by the way, which you can reread the Lord of the Rings fifteen times and never register those sentences. I find so often Tolkien's description of landscape is something that, I mean, admit it. This happens to some of you, to many of you, right? As you're reading through, and you'll get to these bits, and you'll be like. 
blah, 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 landscape, 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 and then you'll go on, you'll kind of jump to the next thing that happens, right? Admit it, we all kind of do that sometimes. It's easy to do that with these descriptions. Um, but what they show us is how much Frodo is paying attention, right? And his sort of state of mind. Away eastward the sun was rising red out of the mists that lay thick on the world. Touched with gold and red, the autumn trees seemed to be sailing rootless in a shadowy sea. Um, that image, which, by the way, is um, uh, an old image of Tolkien's, that, that image of uh, trees as sailing ships on a shadowy sea, uh, is an image that he made much of in one of his earliest poems, um, uh, Cortirian Among the Trees, which you can read in, in the... Uh, the commentary section at the end of the first chapter of the Book of Lost Tales, Volume 1. Um, three versions of that poem, if you would like to. Um, but you can see there, his, he, his a whole stanza where he works on, uh, develops that conceit of the, um, the, the trees like masts and sails um, on a shadowy sea. Um, but notice how we have, uh, you know, this, this idea of the, the, like, it's like a voyage that he's setting out on right, it's like he's he's so this 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 departure is like an embarkation, right? Um, it's like he's going off to sea, and that I think is a good thing. Um, it's interesting to me that this is not necessarily a nostalgic moment, right? I mean, I think nostalgia is leading him to pay careful attention um, to um, uh, to the to the landscape around him, right? But this is not a Shall I ever look down into that valley again? I wonder. Moment for Frodo. This is a um, him looking ahead, right? He, after all, he's looking eastward, right? The direction that he's going, the direction towards Rivendell, um, and he's and and so there's something which is more like the sea longing, I think. Um, yeah, exactly, Mike. Uh, folk in Middle Earth don't mention sailing or sa- or ships lightly. Uh, that 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 um, the the sea longing and the desire for the sea is a really important concept in Tolkien. I absolutely agree. So that does seem to be an important thing there. But again, notice the contrast, right? Pippin assumes he went wandering off to get water, right? His, 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 his thought is completely practical. We're on a camping trip, right? So he's setting out the dishes, right? Like, oh, let's have a nice breakfast, right? So he's laying out the food and he's, he's, he's arranging the cups. And he was assuming that Frodo went off to get water because that's what you should do first thing in the morning, right? You go fetch some fresh water. Um, it, the idea of I'm going to go off and contemplatively gaze across the treetops uh, rising out of the mist, not on Pippin's radar screen, right? Um, oh, you better go now, Right, and I think that that the, the contrast between what we see, the state of mind we see Frodo in, and the state of mind we see Pippin is, uh, is I think really, really important, and something we see uh, later on. Another eastward glance. The day's march promised to be warm and tiring work. After some miles, however, the road ceased to roll up and down. It climbed to the top of a steep bank in a weary zigzagging sort of way, and then prepared to go down for the last time. In front of them, they saw the lower lands dotted with small clumps of trees that melted away in the distance to a brown woodland haze. They were looking across the woody end towards the Brandywine River. The road wound away before them like a piece of string. "'The road goes on forever,' said Pippin. "'But I can't without a rest. It's high time for lunch!' He sat down on the bank at the side of the road, and looked away east into the haze, beyond which lay the river, 
and the end of the shire in which he had spent all his life, Sam stood by him. His round eyes were wide open, for he was looking across lands he had never seen to a new horizon. Do elves live in those woods? he asked. Um, I just love the three perspectives we get here in this moment, right? Um, first, notice the similarity and the contrast between Frodo and Sam. Both of them are thinking they're looking out towards the edge of the Shire, right? They, toward, they can just see where the Brandywine is in the distance, and they know that's the end of the Shire, and beyond that is the wide world into which they are going, right? Um, but where Frodo seems to be thinking about going off into exile, right? Um, beyond that haze lay the river, right? And the end of the Shire... Uh, in which he had spent all his life, right? In which he is leaving behind forever, right? That, that, that's where Frodo's mind is. Sam is seeing the same view and thinking also of going where he's never gone before and says, do elves live in those woods, right? I love that, right? Remember, Sam has never been this far in his life before. And so therefore, everything he sees is, he has heard stories, right? We know he has loved stories of those distant faraway uh, places, those distant faraway woods where elves live, right? This must be them, right? They're there. I mean, look how far they've come, right? So this, the, 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 the East Farthing, right, is from Sam's perspective so remote um, that it is itself marvelous. And he clearly would not be in the least surprised to discover that those, yea, those distant woods over there are where the elves live, right? Um, ironically, there are elves in those woods, as they'll discover, right? But, uh, uh, but of course, they've not, uh, this is not Mirkwood that he's looking at, right? This is not, this is, they're nowhere near Rivendell. Uh, they have not, in fact, even left the Shire, much less entered into, you know, lands of magic and wonder yet. Um, but to Sam... They might as well be, and we can see, you know, elves, sir, right? Uh, that, that's where he, uh, that's where he is right away. Like in crossing out of the land of the familiar, they are entering the land of marvels that he has always firmly believed in from the stories, but has never seen, right? Uh, and that's really fascinating. And then, as Tony says, Pippin, Pippin is still hungry, <laughs> right? You know, the road goes on forever is a line that you can deliver, uh, in three different ways, right? Uh, for each one of the characters, right? With Frodo, there's this kind of resignation. The road goes on forever, right? And I must follow it. Uh, and then with Sam, the wonder, the road goes on forever. And then Pippin is like, oh, the road goes on forever, right? He's just, he wants to just, take, he just wants to take a break and have a snack, right? Um, but I can't without a rest. It's high time for lunch, right? And I love the contrast between in between, like the, I'm going off into exile, and are there elves in those woods, and lunchtime, right? I guess Pippin is in such a different headspace than either of the other two are. Um, and it's just kind of fascinating to see. Um, but let's, uh, let's look at what, because this is the context now. Right, these three different perspectives that we get, and this this look into the distance is where we get Frodo's version of the song. Right, um, it's Pippin who answers Sam's question: "Are there elves in those woods?" Not that I ever heard," said Pippin. Frodo was silent. 
He, too, was gazing eastward along the road, as if he had never seen it before. Uh, notice, by the way, I think that Pippin is misunderstanding Sam's question, right? Sam is asking, are those the the forests that I've heard about in stories that elves live in since we've seen we've come so far and all, right? Um, Pippin doesn't even seem to track with that. Um, not that I have ever heard is the answer to the question of, like, are elves ever seen there, right? Do elves ever come there? Is, is this a place where you might go if you're trying to spot elves, right? Or, uh, or, or if, you know, like, have there been, uh, uh, you know, uh, certified elf sightings in those woods, right? Not that I've ever heard, said Pippin, right? Um, clearly, he's not, I, I don't even think he's really understanding what it is that, that Sam is asking. Frodo was silent. He, too, was gazing eastward along the road as if he had never seen it before. Suddenly he spoke, aloud, but as if to himself, saying slowly, The road goes ever on and on, down from the door where it began. Now far ahead the road has gone, and I must follow, if I can, pursuing it with weary feet until it joins some larger way, where many paths and errands meet, and whither then I cannot say. That sounds like a bit of old Bilbo's rhyming, said Pippin. Or is it one of your imitations? It does not sound altogether encouraging. I don't know, said Frodo. It came to me then as if I was making it up, but I may have heard it long ago. Um, this, of course, is the same poem. We already looked at this poem once, right, when we were looking at Bilbo's version of this poem. Um, this is the song that Bilbo sings as he is departing from Gandalf, having just given up the ring and setting off on his journey, right? I'm off again, off on the road with dwarves, right? Uh, and he, uh, you know, I'm being swept off my feet at last, he says to Gandalf. Uh, Take care, I don't care. Remember all that stuff, right? That was the context in which Bilbo sang this song. And you'll remember there is only one difference, only one word that is different between Bilbo's version and Frodo's version. And it is, of course, C. Schwab, as you say, the difference between the adjective describing the feet, right? Bilbo is pursuing it with eager feet. Frodo is pursuing it with weary feet. That is the only one change that Frodo made. He clearly does remember the song. He's undoubtedly heard Bilbo say it before. But notice he's, it, it, it said it, it came to him as if he were making it up. He felt like he was making it up. This is a song that has emerged out of him. Um, he's not quoting. He is quoting, but that's not what he's doing, if you see what I mean. Um, so, uh, but I think that that one change, that one word really shows, that it really changes the whole thing. But it's not just that one word. It's the entire context, right? We don't even need the change of that word. I would say the shift from eager to, wor- to weary, it doesn't signal the change to the song. It reflects the change to the song. In the context, right, coming from where we just came from, right, looking at... Um, uh, he sat down on the bank at the side of the road and looked away east into the haze beyond which lay the river and the end of the shire in which he had spent all his life, right? Um, the way in which we see him looking at the distant, uh, looking into the distance that he knows he must travel, thinking about going off into exile and leaving his home behind forever in that context. He's, and so when we hear the poem in that context, it necessarily sounds different. It wouldn't sound eager, even if he did get to eager feet, right? And and his replacement of eager with weary seems only fitting. 
Remember Bilbo's excitement. The road goes ever on and on, down from the door where it began. In Frodo's mouth, this sounds completely different, right? The road goes ever on and on, down from the door where it began. He's leaving the door behind. He would like to stay. He would like at least to have the prospect of returning. But no, this is a one-way trip, and it's an endless trip, right? Because that road goes ever on and on. Now far ahead, the road has gone. You're never going to catch up to it, right? You're never going to get to a place. You're just going to be drawn on this road, right? You're going to spend the rest of your life in exile, wandering, running away from danger, right? And I must follow if I can. Think of the force of that word, must, Right? Again, with Bilbo, there was a joy in that. There was a surrender. Right? I must follow. He's pursuing his desire. Right? With Frodo, it's accepting the grim consequences of his choice. Right? I must, I must follow, if I can. Right? If I can, in Bilbo's mouth, right, is the, is the, like, the, you know, I, I don't necessarily deserve this. I don't know if I'm going to make it, but I'm going to try. Right? With Frodo, there's this, like, I don't know if I'm going to make it, but... You know, um, I'll just have to do my best, pursuing it with weary feet until it joins some larger way where many paths and errands meet. And whither then? I cannot say. I can think of the difference there, right? With Bilbo. Think of that. Like, you never know the adventure that's awaiting you, right? You're going to pursue the road with eager feet, and then it's going to join a larger way. It's going to prove to be only a tributary of a bigger path. And on that path, many paths and errands are going to meet. You're going to run into lots of other people with lots of other things going on. And and where will that take you? Who knows, right? That's Bilbo's version of the song. But you see, with Frodo, like, I'm being taken away. I have no idea what's going to happen to me. I'm going to get drawn into bigger things, right? That larger way becomes frankly ominous with Frodo, right? Um, I'm, 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 I'm being taken, but then I'm going to be lost into this, in this much bigger thing. Many paths and, you know, many others are going to be coming in. I'm probably going to need to run away from a lot of them. And where, where in the end am I going to go? No idea, right? No idea if or when I have any, any, uh, any final destination, how different these two songs sound, despite the fact that they are exactly identical, except for the one word, um, is just um, is just incredible to me. Uh, Tim says Bilbo was uh, was singing it uh, uh, in 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 major and Frodo in minor, uh, <laughs> quite quite likely. So Tim, I think it would be really cool, uh, actually. Uh, if you were to do this in, in an adaptation, to have them sing exactly the same song, but to sing it to, to, to drastically different tunes, to do, to do very different things with the music, I think that'd be really neat. The rhythm is the same, right? So it can't be like one is quick and peppy and the other is like, like you know, slow and doleful. Um, but a, a shift like you say, Tim, with, uh, 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 you know, with just changing the, the key. Oops, sorry. Logged out here accidentally. Um, got, 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 got caught up here. Anyway, um, so I, I, this is, uh, I, I, I think this is just, uh, this is just, is just awesome. Um, cool. All right. I think, let's see, almost, yep. One more, one more, one more, then I'll stop. This is, of course, we get reminded of the Bilbonic context of this song, um, Frodo remembering back to Bilbo, right? So we get sort of a connection between those two different perspectives, Bilbo's and Frodo's, and that is Frodo's memory of Bilbo, right? 
Certainly it reminds me very much of Bilbo in the last years before he went away. He used often to say there was only one road, that it was like a great river. Its springs were at every doorstep and every path was its tributary. It's a dangerous business, Frodo. Going out of your door, he used to say, you step into the road and if you don't keep your feet, there is no knowing where you might be swept off to. Do you realize that this is the very path that goes through Mirkwood and that if you let it, it might take you to the Lonely Mountain or even further into worse places? He used to say that on the path outside the front door at Bag End, especially after he had been out for a long walk. "'Well, the road won't sweep me anywhere for an hour at least,' said Pippin, unslinging his pack. The others followed his example, putting their packs against the bank and their legs out into the road. After a rest, they had a good lunch, and then more rest. Um, <laughs> yeah, th- thanks, Tony. I, 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 I found myself needing an adjectival form of Bilbo, and Bilbonic just seemed like the obvious. Uh, the obvious adjectival form. Um, but um, uh, Frodo's characterization of this is, uh, again, to me, really interesting. Notice how um, double-sided it is. I read that passage one way. It could be read another way, right? That is, it could be good fun, right? Bilbo fondly thinking of his adventures, Right. Uh, and, you know, getting all uh, getting all nostalgic about his own adventures in Mirkwood and everything. Right. Um, and, you know, and saying like so basically what Frodo is remembering could amount to someday you might have a grand adventure, my boy. Right. Um, won't that be fun? Or you could read it as a warning. Right. It's a dangerous business, Frodo, going out of your door. You step into the road and if you don't keep your feet, there is no knowing where you might be swept off to. Do you realize that this is the very path that goes through Mirkwood, and that if you let it, it might take you to the Lonely Mountain, or even further into worse places? You could read it as a real caution, right? Be careful, Frodo. Um, so again, like, we can see, I think, the different, those two sort of warring perspectives, right? Bilbo's major version of the song, and Frodo's minor version of the song, uh, they're in the sort of reception of Bilbo's advice, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, and then, of course, you have Pippin, <laughs> right? The road won't sweep me anywhere for an hour at least. Um, completely not getting into the romance of the situation and still thinking of this as a very uh, uh, sort of sort of mundane situation. Um, again, it's just a walking party, whatever. Come on, guys. Right. Let's just take a break. Let's have a, a rest and a good lunch and more rest. Um, exactly, Finn. Pippin is still partying, right? This is this is all this is all fun for Pippin. Um, all right. Um, I'm going to end here. So after this, we're, we will move on to talk about the Black Riders and the encounter with the, the first encounter with the Black Rider. We'll pick up there next time. We'll look at. Uh, so so next week we will do. The uh, the encounter with the Black Rider. Uh, I'll, I'll see if we can get as far as the beginning of the encounter with the elves, um, but I make no very definite promises about that. Um, so at the very least, we'll do the Black Riders next week. But now it is field trip time. So let's uh, let's go on our field. So remember, I said we're going to look at we're going to we're we're going to follow Frodo's path, and we're going to look at the way that in Lotro they deal with scale. Um, which is a really challenging issue in adapting uh, Middle-earth in a a gaming environment 
And I think that they wrestle with that in some really interesting ways. So where are we going to go? We're going to go to Hobbiton. So let's meet at Bag End, okay? Um, I'm just going to, I'm going to cheat and I'm going to milestone there. Because, yeah, sorry. So uh, those of you who have to catch up, I'm, I'm going to start off with a little, I'm going to go in because it struck me as I was preparing for tonight that I didn't, I've no, we've ne- I've never gone inside Bag End on any of our tours, have I? Oh, that's right, you haven't. No. I think I've skipped that, which is a shame. So, uh, we'll I'll, I'm gonna I'm gonna port straight over there, and then we'll peek into into Hobbiton or into Bag End rather. Um, so, uh, you guys can meet me either inside Bag End or right outside on the front porch where Lobelia and Lotho are still standing, and um, we will, um, and then we we will head off from there. One of the things that I'm going to be doing in tonight's uh, uh, tonight's field trip, which is, and I'm so I'm going to head out right now. Um, one of the things that I'm going to be doing that's different in tonight's field trip is uh, actually looking at some passages of text. I want to re- I want to be looking at the actual dis- landscape description that we get of uh, Tolkien describing their journey, and then do some comparing and con- and contrasting. So I think we see some interesting things when we compare and contrast how Tolkien described it uh, and the landscape that they actually have. So. Here I am outside the ivy bush. I just want to see if anybody still in the Lorehome needs a port. We've got yeah. people offering ports here, some hunters. So if you need to port and you see a hunter standing near you, send them a tell and they will um, follow up and get you moving. Great. Okay, so I'm going to head up so you, you guys will recognize this by now, the ivy bush, and I'm crossing the water on the bridge. And there's Sandyman's Mill. And the granaries, Bagshot Row up there to the left, and it's it's night even, which is excellent. Oops, but it's about to become dawn, so probably by the time I finish looking at Bag End, the sun will be up, so it won't uh, anymore be under the stars. I guess we should just we should look up now. There we are, right? The stars are bright above us. It's a nice clear night, so that at least is uh, appropriate. To the story. Okay, so going up the hill here. See, Trisha, I'm getting a little echo from your mic there. Okay. Um, okay. That was the entrance to the party field down there. This is going up to Bag End. Okay, and here we are at Bag End. I see several people arriving including the Bingo Boffin look-alike, which is a great outfit there. Oh, I like... What are you carrying on your back, uh, oh, Bingo look-alike? Oh, a basket of vegetables! Oh, yeah, that's... So this, is this like the vegetarian version? Bingo Boffin's actual backpack has a has a, uh, a, a string of sausages continually hanging on it. Uh, this looks like the vegetarian version of that, which, which I suppose is good. So let's, uh, Otho and, let's sneak past Otho and Lobelia, um, who would certainly not like us traipsing about their property now, but uh, we'll go in anyway. Now, so now remember, this is after the sale, right? So we don't get to see Bag End as it would have looked um, when uh, Bilbo and Frodo lived there. But there are some touches you can see which they haven't yet finished redecorating. Uh, one thing, of course, that we notice, which is uh, straight out of the description in The Hobbit, is the row of pegs, right, uh, for hoods. 
and cloaks uh, because the Hobbit was fond of visitors. We get this on page one of the Hobbit, uh, and and you'll notice, of course, in Beggin, we get around the corner and there's a there's a secondary row of pegs, so that we have plenty of uh, of place to accommodate visitors here. Um, the Again, it's uh, it's in kind of shabby shape. Like you'll notice that the bookcases are here, but the books, you know, they're only half full of books and there are books still lying around on the floor. Um, you know, uh, the, the, the Sackville Bagginses are still moving in. I think it's interesting, the implication that the Sackville Bagginses don't have as many books as Bilbo and Frodo did, right? They can't fill their bookcases. Um so, you know, maybe we're learning a little bit something about the non-literary life of the Sackville Bagginses. Notice we have a couple different sitting rooms. There's this back sitting room, which has no windows. Uh, this, I think, is a really cool touch. Um, we're told, of course, uh, in The Hobbit that one of the things that you can find hanging in Bag End is a, a, a map of the county round uh, with uh, Bilbo's favorite walks marked on it in red ink. Um, and the map of the county has been replaced by uh, a map of Eriador. Right. And I, I think I, I, I think that's great. Like this idea of the sort of reflecting the uh, um, the greater sort of more expanded worldview of uh, of the Bagginses in later years. Right. Um, many of the wall hangings are clearly uh, some of them are, are common Hobbit hangings that you can see in taverns and stuff. Um, but some of them are very sort of Bilbo ish. Um, I like to think that that's Bungo Baggins over there. But um, this, of course, is the parlor next to the windows. Uh, so that means that these would undoubtedly have been uh, one of these two windows would have been the one that uh, Gandalf would have infenestrated Sam through. Uh, and this is doubtless the very fire into which Frodo or Gandalf rather cast the ring in order to reveal the fire writing. So this would have been. Um, so, yes, uh, let's see who is this. No, not Storm Raven. Um, Beolwina. Yes, Beolwina there is doubtless sitting in one of the two chairs that Gandalf and Frodo themselves sat in as they sat uh, having their chapter two conversation. So it's a cozy little room. The choice to put a planter inside the window, I always find uh, very interesting. But... Uh, uh, but anyway, so and I, I, I rather suspect this must have been the hearth uh, on which Bilbo would have fallen down yelling, struck by lightning, struck by lightning as well. Um, which means, I suppose, that this one over here is probably the room where he would have been uh, brought and laid with a drink at his elbow um, while the dwarves went back into the other room, to, you know, after he had his little fainting fit, right? Um Finn says they're herbs, right? a little indoor herb garden, right? Well, next we have the pantry, which again is scandalously bare. I mean, look at just a few things lying around and a lot of empty dishes and a lot of empty shelves. Sackville Baggins is just, well, they, in their defense, they haven't fully moved in yet, um, but clearly they don't know how to live um, compared, to, uh, compared to the Bagginses. And then this, of course, over here is the, is the dining room where undoubtedly... The unexpected party would have happened. This place would have been full of dwarves, and I like the this. I like the size, right? Notice this is a table that seats about ten, right? In other words, Bag End clearly could accommodate the party of dwarves and wizards, right? You know, there were there were what fifteen of them total, counting the wizard. Um, but his table wouldn't have normal. You know, he he. 
you could seat 15 in this room, but you'd have to bring in some extra tables and throw in some extra chairs and stuff. So there would still be some scrambling that would have had to go on. It would have felt uncomfortably large, even though it would have fit. Right. Um, which is which is kind of fun, and then of course we can't go any further. Bag end goes uh, goes back still a good ways, but of course it's all uh, uh, it's all full of jumbled furniture. The Sackville Bagginses are still moving in because they've just bought the place. Um, so all right, so that's what we can see of Bag End, uh, which is uh, which is a lot of fun. Again, I would have liked to see it uh, during Frodo's uh, during Frodo's time. I, I'm certainly hoping that. Uh, We'll get the scouring of the Shire uh, at the end of, uh, you know, after we go to, 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 to Mordor, that Lotra will do the scouring of the Shire. I'm sure that they're going to. And that we will get to see a restored Bag End looking like uh, uh, it looks after, after Frodo and Sam restore it. Um, so, all right. So now let's set out. So first of all, I want to, um, I want to, I, I, I want to think about a few general things. Let's here look at the, Look at the the excellent view right as we look down into the river valley, right. So there's the water down there. There's uh, we see we can see the mill. There's the um, the road that crosses up to um, to to the hill that you can see. There's 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 Tuckborough over there across the way. Um, let's think about let's think about scale. So in the game world, of course. They can't be too realistic about the distances, or it's going to take too long for players to run around. They have, you know, the world is big. It has to be big enough to, you know, for people to be able to spend a lot of game hours exploring. But obviously, if you have to travel for days and weeks and months between places, I mean, if they made the distances at all realistic, it would just take too long to play the game. It would be way too low yield to be rewarding in gameplay experience. So it's pretty clear that the parameters they work with from the beginning you know, the scale that they choose, um, whatever scale, whatever exact scale they end up choosing is going to have to be far, far, far smaller than the actual scale. Um, so what's the impact of that? How does that restrict some of their, uh, their landscape choices and what they can do out of the, um, uh, out of the, the, um, descriptions in the book? Let's look at the map. <clears throat> look at the Shire, the Lotra Shire map here. Right now, I've mentioned before how closely they follow um, the published map out of the book, um, which they do. And you know, I've mentioned almost everything that's named. In fact, I think absolutely everything that's named uh, on this map is named uh, in on the Shire maps. They don't include absolutely everything. There are some other towns, for instance, um, that are not on the Lotro map, but are on the Shire map. Um, but they. Uh, but but again, everything they have included, they have drawn uh, from the map, and they've kept the basic road network and everything pretty well the same. But let's 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 actually look at it to contrast. Those of you who are in the game might want to look at the Twitch feed again for a second so that you can see my slides. Because I'm going to go ahead past all of the Ringwraith passages we didn't get to. There's the oh yeah, so there's the Shire. Uh, there's a formal map of the Shire. Um, Okay, I just included this uh, for fun. I was uh, finding a digital copy of the map online, and I stumbled across this uh, today. This was this is today's gift from the internet to you. Um, I absolutely love this. This image is my new favorite thing. This is the 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 web page. It's a guy's blog. Um, uh, you can see of the guy who 
who made this. I, I just, I, this is like, as I said, this is like my, I'm thinking of making this my desktop now. This is absolutely fantastic. Um, so, sorry. Anyway, seriously, here is the published uh, uh, Shire map. So, okay, so here's Tolkien's map. Um, now, let's kind of go back and forth for a second. You can see, um, uh, you can see the, the, the roads, right? Um, Look at the so this is the road that they're going to end up going the road from Tuckborough through the Green Hill Country past Woodhall and then up to Stock. This road here is the main east-west road right that goes from the Brandywine Bridge all the way through to Waymeet and then turns and goes up you know the Dwarf Road up to the Blue Mountains up through Needlehall right. And again, if we look at the Shire map, we can see here's the main east road right that crosses the Brandywine Bridge here. Um, uh, goes through past uh, Budgeford there, Frogmorton here. So there's uh, Whitfurrows, which is an extra town that we don't get in Lotro because um, we don't have room for all these towns right next to each other because of the scale. Again, they, 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 they couldn't squeeze more towns in without making the whole Shire look like a suburb, right? We look almost urban, right? They, they, they want to make sure there's open country so they take out some of the towns. That seems a very logical thing to do, you know, given that you have to compress the scale. There's the road that loops up past scale and Brockenborings, right? Um, here's the Three Farthing Stone right across the road from Bywater. There's Bywater Pool and Hobbiton, the Hill and Overhill, right? Um, the Rushick Bog and Needlehole. No Bottle is another town that doesn't make it into Lotro, right? But um, uh, anyway, the <laughs> my favorite my favorite thing is the the regional rail to Sarnford and to Bree. I just. Just love that. Anyway, sorry. Uh, here's the road as it goes. It continues on down from uh, from Waymeet down to down down to Sarn Ford. Um, anyway, uh, so again, you can see. So here. Oh, by the way, so sorry. Here's the road from Tuckborough, right along the edge of the Green Hill Country, right past Woodall and into Stock, and then there's the Marish down below it. So again, you can see how the overall shape they've you know that all of the features they've drawn. There's Bindbowl Wood up there, but the thing that's different is the scale. Look how much, look how compressed this is. Compare, again, compare the two. Notice how much white space is in the middle, right? All of this land is just like farmland and open land. Then you've got the, the woods down here in the woody end and the bindbowl wood, which is way up there, right? Uh, look at all this space between the road and uh, Brockenborings and Scary up there, right? Whereas, like, we get some open space here, right, uh, in the bridge fields, um, but it's, there's, there's not, I mean, the Bindbowl wood is brought much closer down. Um, and these look, you know, like they look like they're kind of far, but they're, but they're in the game. These are super close together. All these things are, have to be compressed in so much that there just, there isn't that much extra room. So one of the thing, obviously, that they did, uh, in making the Shire map is compress it. Or as rather is is to cut things, right? They don't include everything, so they cut some of the towns. Notice the Marish, right? Uh, the Marish ex- barely extends past Farmer Maggot's farm, whereas again in the original, um, there's several towns down there, right? Here's uh, here's Stock, and there's the Buckleberry Ferry right there, um, and there's the Stock Brook. Um, so Farmer Maggot's farm is in it, but then here's Rushy and Deep Hollow and Willow Bottom, right? There are three towns uh, further south than where Farmer Maggot lives. 
right? Um, and uh, there's Deep Hollow right across the river from Hayes End, right? The southernmost town in the Buckland, right? There's this strip of land here between the hedge uh, at the edge of the old forest and the river, right, is Buckland. Um, anyway, so it's... it's it, we've got all this room, and we know that in the scale of this map, these distances are quite long, right? It takes two and a half days to walk from Hobbiton to Buckland, right? Presumably they're planning to go, they're not going to go down this road, right? They're going to go down this road because it's slightly less well-traveled, right? There's the Yale Height right there, which you can see in the game uh, if you look around. Um, So I think they're headed for the ferry and across the ferry to Crick Hollow, which you can see there's an arrow pointing to it right over here, right? Um, so you can see that they're, they're, they're almost certainly planning to cross the ferry anyway uh, to get to Crick Hollow. Uh, as from down here, it's much more direct rather than going along the road and then dropping down south. But again, these are all very long distances. The map looks very similar, but the distances are much, much smaller. Um, and so we're going to see that's going to put some serious restrictions on what they're able to do when they are doing um, when they're doing a, a, a direct interpretation of the landscape as Tolkien described. They can't just make the, to- the landscape be exactly what Tolkien describes. Some of these seem to be aesthetic choices that they make, but others are just to, it seems, to compression. So let's read, hear the, the descriptions of them leaving. He waved his hand and then turned and, following Bilbo, if he had known it, hurried after Peregrine down the garden path. Okay, so let's do that. Let's go. So that's this way. So we're going to go down, the, we're going to follow Bilbo, and head down the garden path. I assume this is the garden path. I couldn't find any other path that would seem to be the garden path. Um, so we're going to go down. So 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 we get our following Bilbo, and we get down here. Okay. All right, Tolkien, what happens next? Okay. They jumped over the low place in the hedge at the bottom and took to the fields, passing into the darkness like a rustle in the grasses. Okay. Now, notice, there is not a hedge. This is something that is, this is what I think is an, is an aesthetic choice. There are some hedges in the Shire. Tolkien describes a lot of hedges. If any of you have seen the English countryside or walked across the English countryside, you'll know about the hedges. They, they do, they're into hedges in the English countryside. Hedges, of course, are... Um, uh, uh, they're like a poor man's fence, right? Because you don't have to build a fence. Think of how much effort people, like in the American West, for instance, had to spend in trying to build fences that would keep their livestock in and everything. Well, in England, they had the hedges, right? And so if you have hundreds of years to let hedges grow, they get really tall and really thick, and they become these impenetrable barriers. And so you have to find a gap in the hedge that you can squeeze through, or... Um, and hedge breaking is a big deal. You don't want to break break somebody's hedge because you have to grow it back and everything. It's awful. Anyway, so we have a split rail fence, a much more American kind of rail fence here instead of a hedge, which is uh, what is described in the book. My theory, by the way, the hedges in England are quite tall. Again, if you've ever uh, wandered around the English countryside, it looks really awesome from a distance, and you see the hedges, and it looks like this, like uh, you know, this this like sort of you know. Uh, um, a quilt-like pattern. It looks really beautiful. But when you're actually walking through it, what do you see? Little. (laughs) Because you're walking either between two really tall hedges or next to a really tall hedge and you can't see through it, and it's taller than you, 
a lot of the time. These are not like waist high hedges. Uh, these are these are, are are tall and impenetrable hedges, right? Um, and so if they had real English hedges in the game, um, you wouldn't be able to see very far, and you wouldn't be able to get around very much. It would be it would be really kind of tricky. So I can kind of understand why they made the choice. In even in the places where they have hedges, they're really short. Um, so instead, in the Shire, they go for. Uh, these old weathered wood fences, like you can see here, or stone walls. Um, uh, stone walls, which are kind of more New England than England, but uh, but that's okay. I mean, again, I aesthetically, I think it works. I really like the aesthetic of the Shire. Uh, but anyway, so let's imagine that we've hopped a hedge, and we're, now we take to the fields, and we're going through the fields um, uh, uh, very silently, right? Like, uh, like what was our, 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 our metaphor again? Right? Like a rustle in the grasses, right? Okay, until we get to the bottom of the hill. So we're, we're going through the fields, right? We've left the path, and we're going to rustle through the grasses here, right? Until we get to the bottom of the hill. So we're going to the bottom of the hill, and we've got a farm over here, so we've got to sneak down so that nobody on the farm sees us. Okay, and now we come to the bottom of the hill on its western side. All right. And that's where we get to here, right? Okay, at the bottom of the hill on its western side, they came to the gate opening on a narrow lane. Um, again, you, you have to find gates because of all those darned hedges, right? You can't just walk across fields um, because uh, you have to force your way through the hedge, which is which takes some doing. Um, so you, you have to go where there are gates, right? So that's why we, we emphasize that. Okay, there they halted and adjusted the straps of their packs. So th- then they follow the lane westward. So notice that uh, in the game they have included a lane, right? This is a lane that comes out just across from the... Uh, uh, we're just south of the party field. You can see the party tree up there. Um, but so, so they, they have included a, a farmer's lane here uh, that goes off to the west. Um Unfortunately, the lane does not go as far or wander about nearly as much as is described in the book. Again, look at the book description. For a short way, they followed the lane westwards. Then leaving it, they turned left and took quietly to the fields again. They went in single file along hedgerows and the borders of coppices, and night fell dark about them. Um, so now we're headed towards geographic. We're, we're, we're headed towards Bywater. We know they're going to cross the river at around Bywater, and we're not quite there yet. Um, so, now, they wouldn't run across somebody's fields like this, right? And this field would be surrounded by hedges and not by split rail fences. But, anyway, they, they head off. Now, they take a left at the lane, right? Which would be heading north into the Bindbowl Wood, of course, in the game. Because the Bindbowl Wood is, like, right there, right? Because it's, the, again, we're very geographically compressed. So in the in the book, it winds much further. It, it eventually clearly turns south so that they then take a left at the end of it and are heading off here. Here's the pool of Bywater, right? So we've got to jump down because they, they have to cross the water. Um, in the game, as in the, um, as in the book, there are two bridges, right? There's the main bridge up by the mill, and, which you can see in that, uh, that picture of Tolkien's that he painted that we looked at before. And there's this second one, which is the one that Frodo and Pippin and Sam cross. But again here we have a difference. Let's look how Tolkien describes this bridge. After some time they crossed the water west of Hobbiton by a narrow plank bridge. The stream was there no more than a winding black ribbon, 
bordered with leaning alder trees. A mile or two further south, they hastily crossed the great road from the Brandywine Bridge. Okay, let's, we'll, we'll get there in a second. A narrow plank bridge, and here we have a two-span stone bridge instead. Now, why is that? Now, on the one hand, um, the very fact that I feel like this is an, an alteration from the text that demands an explanation um, should tell you how much respect I have for how carefully they read, the Lotro designers read the books, right? I do not believe they have just been careless and not paid attention to the fact... I, I, I can promise you uh, that the Lotro guys, made of lions, and Chris Pearson know perfectly well that it is a narrow plank bridge that crosses the water at this point. So why didn't they put a narrow plank bridge there? Um, well, I think the answer is in the rest of the description. Look at, uh, did you notice the other bit there? The stream was there no more than a winding black ribbon bordered with leaning alder trees. A narrow black ribbon. It's a plank bridge because the water, the stream, the river at that point, is so narrow you can almost jump over it. You almost hop over it. It's just like a little, it's called a stream, and it's, it's just a, a little wandering black ribbon in the darkness, right? Um, this river is not a little ribbon. You, nobody could jump over this, right? Um, why is it? So, okay, so, so I'm saying this would look really silly to span a bridge of this size with a plank bridge. You, could, you wouldn't have a plank long enough to be able to get across it. It just wouldn't work, right? Think of how much the, 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 the plank would, would, would bow in the middle, right, when you were walking across it. Nobody would bridge a river of this size with a plank bridge. It would look stupid, and it wouldn't work anyway. So, okay, so the size of the river, so they've changed the size of the river. That seems to necessitate a larger, it is a narrower bridge than the other one, but, and it's less fancy, but still. So, okay, so then, but that just bumps the question back another, another, um, um, another spot, right? Why is it that they made the river so wide? Why did they change the width of the river? Well, look, there's the mill right there. Again, think of the scale. In the book, the gap between Hobbiton and Bywater is, is bigger, right? It's not like several days' journey. Sam can go to the pub down in, down in Hobbiton, right, and perfectly fine, you know, and then walk back home of an evening. So it doesn't take all that long. Um, but it's not that close. This, that, I mean, this looks like it's just, the, you know, like, what, a couple hundred yards away. If this stream at this point were so narrow that you could almost jump over it, right, um, yeah, Tony, I, I do love the NPC Hobbit talking about the good tilde earth as it go by. These little, like, I'm just going to go and quote the prologue, right? The concerning Hobbit's prologue. Um, I love those little touches. Anyway, um, if, if at this point where we get this bridge, the stream were so narrow you could almost hop over it, how dumb would... You, you couldn't put a mill in a stream of that size, right? I mean, it's, it's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a water mill in it, right? Um... So now again, if you've got some some room for it to change in size, you could, but not here, right? This, again, the scale is too small to have any kind of dramatic um, uh, decrease in the size of the river uh, between that spot and this spot, right? So, um, so I mean, again, I think with the way that this and here we have the pool, the bywater pool, right? Um, 
and there's of course Bywater right up there. Um, so again, this seems to me the kind of change that they're sort of forced into by the fact that they have to do the scale smaller. Um, now let's uh, let's carry on because they're going to head across. So see this path up from the from the bridge is doubtless the path they took. Now this road, this is this is the this is the road between Hobbiton and Bywater. So this is the road that Sam would have walked past, would have walked down, uh, most likely, because to go over the fields like we just did would have, and like Frodo was doing, would have been kind of weird. Um, anyway, so that's that's uh, that's uh, Sam and Ted Sandyman's way home from from the pub. Here is the road. So now we are on, this is the main east road that goes to the Brandywine Bridge, right? Um, so you can see that where we've gotten right here, right next to Bywater. Now, back to our description. Okay. A mile or two further south, they hastily crossed the Great Road. A mile or two. We just walked a mile from the river, which you can just barely see over that one hill right to here, is is a mile or two. That gives you a clear sense of the difference in scale, right? That was nothing like a mile. <laughs> we just walked. But again, you you see kind of what they're up against here. So, okay, so pretend we've gone a mile or two. Uh, okay, they hastily crossed the Great Road from the Brandywine Bridge. They were now in Tookland. And bending southeastwards, they made for the Green Hill Country. Okay, so let's... Uh, Let's go southward, right? We've crossed into into in, into Tookland, and we're gonna we're gonna curve to the southeast, right? This festival field wasn't necessarily. Oh, look, we've entered Tookland, right? Uh, notice, by the way, notice where we are. That's Farmer Cotton's house right there, right? Um, and again, you can see that even in uh, even in the Shire map, right, right north of Bywater, they would have been right around there. Um, I can't help but think that, and the, since they went right past Bywater here, that uh, Sam was thinking of Rosie, right, as he went past this way, and, and I don't think he would have gone past quite this close to her house, right, but uh, but still close enough that uh, he's got to be thinking about it. So we're. We're head, heading uphill here. Let's go uphill. If we look out, let's see, let's get up to the top of this hill. And then let's turn around and look back. Okay. Notice what we see from here. Well, again, back to the text. Oop. Back to the text. As they began to climb its first slopes, they looked back and saw the lamps in Hobbiton far off, twinkling in the gentle valley of the water. Soon it disappeared in the folds of the darkened land, and was followed by bywater beside its grey pool. When the lights of the last farm was far behind, peeping among the trees, Frodo turned and waved a hand in farewell. So you can see there's Hobbiton, right over there, right? We can just see the lamps of Hobbiton. Look, there's Bag End, right? Which, of course, would have been dark. There wouldn't have been any lamps at Bag End. But, uh, but there's, there's Hobbiton, right, which you can just see. And there, of course, is bywater by its grey pool. So, from somewhere around here, this is where this is where Frodo would have been looking back and waving at this valley as he turns back to see it for the last time. But we're gonna we're gonna keep on heading up into into the Tookland. 
And this journey, see, there's the road right there that we're headed for. But as you'll see in the book, again, it takes them a while to get there. Let's see. Thin-clad birches, swaying in a light wind above their heads, made a black net against the pale sky. They ate a very frugal supper for hobbits, and then went on again. Soon they struck a narrow road that went rolling up and down, fading gray into the darkness ahead, the road to Woodhall, Stock, and the Buckleberry Ferry. It climbed away from the main road in the water valley, and wound over the skirts of the green hills towards Woody End, a wild corner of the East Farthing. And, uh, look! Birch trees, right? Uh, the thin birches that uh, that they describe. So we do have birches on this height, right? So we run through the birch trees. So again, you can see, like, they, 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 they do try, right? They put all the details that they can fit in, right, in, and here we have the road. So here's the road that leads from, from Tuckborough out to Woodhall and then eventually to Stock and through the Green Hill Country, which is what we've just entered, right? Now, um, one thing that you really don't get um, in uh, Lotro, uh, <clears throat> that you don't get in this road on this trip, is anything like that eastward view, either the eastward view that Frodo saw when you, uh, when he, um, you know, so with the, with the trees like sailing ships in the mist, right? Or the, uh, the view that they look down when they're, you know, when elf, when the Sam is saying, are there elves in those woods, right? We don't get that from the road, which is clearly where they were getting it. By the way, this is the spot where if you play the game and you start a Hobbit character, um, you, your character starts right here at this intersection and you see, uh, Frodo and Pippin and Sam, walking down this road together at night. Um, so you can tell we're, on, we're in, the, we're, we're, we're in the, the right direction. So as I said, you can't see the distant vistas because it just it, it never opens out that way. Um, there's not enough room. So the best thing you can do if you, if you come up here, you can begin to see a little bit. Watch out for the hill toads. They're fierce around here. Um, so from here, we can begin to see some off into the distance here. Let me zoom forward here. Yeah, zoom all the way. That, of course, is the Frogmoors and Frogmorton. You can see the road stretching away and winding off into the distance. The road continues on this way. There's Budgeford up there, right? Stock down there. You can just see the haze in the distance, right, where the Brandywine would be. Those trees that we can see in the distance would be the old forest on the other side of Buckland. Um... There's uh, uh, Woodall. So we don't get, like, the, the descending country down into the woody end. There's just not enough space, right? Um, if, uh, if they're going to follow sort of the main shape of the map, right? And you remember, even on Tolkien's map, we got... And I'll go back to it again. Like the hills here, right? The road along the hills and through the woods, right? And, and so we're doing the same thing up along the hill country here, but um, there's just... You get to you get to the low country and to the river too soon, right? Because of the scale, uh, to be able to drop into Woodall uh, like that, the drop is too precipitous and the trees are in the way. Uh, anyway, but so you can get some kind of effect, and I, I do think the Shire is beautiful uh, from a distance. Again, it's not quite the views uh, that they were getting, um, but uh, anyway, okay. So let's let's carry on a little bit more. 
Now, one other thing that we will not find um, is the fir wood. So you'll remember that Sam knows where there's a fir wood that will break the west wind, right? So the wind is coming up from behind us here, blowing from the west, and Sam knows right where you can find a, where you can find a fir wood to shelter because we're still within 20 miles of uh, um, of Hobbiton. There aren't any fir woods around here. It's still all birches mostly. And again, there I think that I, I think the fir woods are a victim of scale as well. If they had put in they do a really good job of making the landscape feel consistent, right? Um, if you were to pass, uh, it would be, you would get a kind of aesthetic whiplash, I think, if you were to pass from, like, one uh, very different kind of of, uh, of landscape zone to another one, right? From from this kind of open hill country with the birch trees, uh, with, you know, like the birch and the oaks, right? And you were to, to shift from that into into stands of pines and everything. I mean, you'll, you'll remember seeing off across the way, right? Look at that. We got hills with pines over there, right? So when you're over there in the Bindbowl Wood and up on the heights above, you know, between Frogmorton and Budgeford, um, it feels very different, right? Though that's a very different kind of forest over there. If there were bits of forest like that that we were running, you know, to keep maintain this the scale, running in and out of, you know, every few seconds, this part of the hills wouldn't feel consistent aesthetically at all, or, or sort of geographically consistent. Um, again, I don't know exactly the rationale of why they made all these uh, aesthetic decisions. I'm just describing what I see and what kind of makes sense to me. Um, and again, I know that they uh, they are careful enough about detail that there's always a good reason if they leave something out. But of course, there's one detail that they've not left out, and that, of course, is our friend, the fox. Uh uh, they, they, there is, this is a stable fox. There are places where you can sing, and I get rid of the, the uh, floaty names here now. Um, there are, you can see foxes all over the place, and they'll wander around, and they'll run away from you if you come up to them and stuff, and you can, uh, if you're not an elf, you can shoot them. Um, but uh, this fox is stable and untargetable. This fox is always here, uh, and this is right around the spot where they would have found uh, shelter for the night. Um, I do kind of wish... If I if one criticism that I would make, they could have put a hollow tree. Um, I would love to see the hollow tree where they slept for the night. My 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 only theory about why they didn't put in the hollow tree is that the hollow tree would have to be big enough to 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 hold three hobbits, and I think in the game scale it would look weird to be like a big enough hollow tree to hold three people inside. Um, but anyway, I don't know exactly why. I miss the hollow tree. I, I, I look for the hollow tree and wish it were here. Um, I always, like when I came in, I saw the fox and I looked over at this big fat tree over here and I'm like, oh, is it hollow around the back? But no, nah, it's not hollow around the back. I was disappointed. But anyway, so here's the thinking fox uh, that they included. And I love the fact that we just have a stable. There's always a fox here uh, so that you can always encounter him. There are whole bunches of, of kind of Easter egg things like that that you can find. Um, all right, so this is as far as we got in the book. This is as far as we're going to get here this evening. Um, I should let you guys go. I've kept you late here tonight. 
and yes, Sam, I love if you uh, uh, the the series of quests that you get from there's a farm down near, near down near Mickle Delving where you can do a bunch of quests involving their chickens. Uh, in fact, you can do quests as their chickens. Um, so you take the form of a chicken and you can go running across the Shire and indeed all the way around the world. Uh, on a memorable occasion last year, I ran in the form of a chicken all the way from Mickle Delving to Minas Tirith, which was great fun. Um, but yes, when you do the chicken quest, um, one of the places that you, 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 you go to talk to, uh, uh, several different animals in the Shire to find out what's going on. And, uh, one of the animals you talk to is a pig, uh, whom you interact with in several quests in, in, uh, in, near Tuckboro. Um, the second animal that you interact with is the talking fox. And the third animal that you interact with is uh, Grip and Fang, Farmer Maggot's dogs. Um, so, uh, so those are really fun. But um, uh, anyway, yeah, so I, 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 I'm, I'm a big fan of the chicken quest, if only because we get to come and have a dialogue with the fox. And he reflects upon how the strange things that are going on in the Shire that he totally saw three hobbits sleeping out of doors underneath a tree. Um, but, uh, anyway, it was, uh, it, it, Tim, it is a dangerous quest because you're going to seek out a fox as a chicken, which is no big deal. But the fox, uh, generously agrees not to eat you at the end of that quest. So, uh, it's, uh, it's pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, uh, Milthalio, you do get to interact with Grip and Fang. Uh, so that's, uh, that's pretty fun. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, Sanson's farm. Exactly. Sam, uh, near Mickle Delving, uh, just North of Mickle Delving, go to the, the center of, Mickle Delving and head north and you'll find the chicken farm uh, where you can interact with them, do the quests, and uh, uh, undertake chicken journeys around Middle-earth. Around uh, Middle-earth. Oh yeah, Wolf too, right? Grip, Fang, and Wolf, all three of them. Um, but anyway, it's, it's, it's awesome. Okay, so we're going to leave that here tonight. Next week, we're back on Landreval and we're going to carry on with Chapter 3. So we will meet the Black Riders next week. It'll be very exciting. Um, so thanks, everybody, for joining me tonight, and I look forward to seeing you guys again next week. Thanks now. Bye! <laughs>